chapter 6, Regime versus Relationship, in which the author appears to wish to tentatively approach such difficult topics as human connection, openness, trust, intimacy, and other troubling things, squeamishly. Years ago, when I encountered Don Miller and his early books, I several times ran across the word relational, which sounded to me quite made up. But if there's anything I now feel that my church messed up, which messed me up in turn, and which I mess up nowadays, it's relationships. We were living just as if you could somehow do truth, doctrine, and being right without doing love and relationship and still function as Christians. Turns out you can't, like, at all. If you try to just study the doctrine stuff and you don't bother with the relationship and connection stuff, you screw up and miss the point of the doctrine, too and you end up with very little idea about anyone or anything much. You miss the point of the Bible, the point of Jesus coming here. He wasn't just here to convey facts to know, rules to obey, and things to believe. He was here so people could get to know God as a person, and how better to connect to him, to mend the broken relationship between us. It really doesn't work to try to live as Christians on being right alone. We tried it, though, hard lived as if we could just know facts and theories from the Bible and call it doctrine or teaching. More arrogantly, we took our own belief constructs and traditional practices and called it scripture, though clearly it was really something we had assembled out of Bible bits ourselves as suited our emotional baggage. The lesson from the scriptures that never seemed to be getting learned was that we need to know how to behave toward one another, how to care for one another, how to treat one another, how to connect... That stuff is the essence of Christianity, it turns out. But we really sucked at it. In fact, today, when I try to connect to other Christians and things go south, the same issue is what's tripping us up. Is it really all about positions on things? About deciding who stands with us and who is against us? Making endlessly accusatory and evasive and defensive arguments? Or are there feelings at the root of it all that need to be focused on? hiding underneath the supposed doctrinal issues and positions. Why can't we even admit it when we're angry or hurt? When it comes to human relationships and our little gatherings of humans, do we build and maintain lasting relationships with all the people, or are we up to something else entirely? I was chatting with Laura recently, and we talked about how our parents and so many others poured absolutely everything into the meeting at the expense of human relationships, family relationships. I've heard what life is for people like Olympic skaters or ballerinas, how they don't live normal broad lives but put all of their eggs in one basket and expend themselves entirely in that one area and hope they don't get a career-ending injury of some kind. Some people were like that about meeting. They poured all of their time and hearts into meeting-related stuff that was supposedly serving God and maybe other Christians, but ultimately they find themselves at the end of their lives with no one but a couple of distant children to even call when there's a health problem. Children who don't really talk to them. It's like the more they put into the meeting, the less they have now. Their investment was lost, like people who were the victims of a scam. Many people have strained, difficult, or almost non-existent relationships with what should be their closest family, friends, and fellow Christians nowadays. It seems that relationship was so de-emphasized that it was allowed to die on the vine mostly in favor of other stuff. Meeting attendance, being right, taking positions, having divisions, that kind of thing. 
So, if your daughter stops showing up at meeting, you go out to meeting and she's elsewhere and she kind of drifts out of your life. And if your daughter starts sleeping around or drinking or both, maybe she's just a liability, an embarrassment in meeting circles, so you cut her off and keep right on plugging away at being brethren. You can't, of course, go along with her life choices, you say, so you put your heart and time and mind into the meeting. You leave it with the Lord. You wait for her to see the error of her ways and return to meeting, hoping distancing yourself from her choices will make her come to her senses. But actually, it teaches her nothing new about love at all. And at the end of your life, you find your daughter has a lot of grievances, doesn't seem to want to hear you talk about how to be more like Jesus, and your assembly is just you and your wife, and the two of you are only together because you don't believe in marital divorce, just family and ecclesiastical divorce. I guess what I'm saying is a whole lot of meeting people did stuff instead of relationship, and their lives haven't gone well. But still, many see everything in terms of being right and making scriptural choices. Everything is either right or else wrong, and every word of the Bible is supposedly presenting a simple black-and-white position. I spoke about this with my mom yesterday. We talked about today's old men. She spoke of how they'd changed from who she'd known them to be in their youth as a result of over-involvement in legalistic groups. Mom said, It's like with a cult. I went on to say that first they lose their sense of humor, and then increasingly they can't connect to other people at all and only want to talk about one or two pet topics, prophecy or something. They narrow so much. By the time they're old men, they don't seem to have any friends left. They are surrounded by the wreckage of the groups they used to be part of, and they seem to have profound, lasting emotional health problems. It's like the legalism nibbled away at them their whole lives, and now there's not much of the original man left. Hard not to see a bit of Smeagol going on, being right and having a voice in meeting is their precious. Dallas Willard suggests the Bible is not written merely to stop people doing wrong things. He said that many things Jesus presented, like the Sermon on the Mount and the parables and the comments about tearing out one's eyes if they offend, are not a matter of Jesus presenting rules or limits. They are, he says, Jesus' creative descriptions of exactly what kind of person a spiritual human being would be and what that kind of life might be like. Not just the limits, the flavor not just the thou shalt nots, also the thou shalt be able to. He speaks of the Holy Spirit coming and takes a look at the fruit of the Spirit and sees how much of it requires relationships with other people to see it in action. Behavior is, often, mainly important as a key to who the person is inside. Being redeemed isn't just about a Christian keeping his sinful self hidden. It's about the inner self being seen and it showing the hand of God upon it, redeeming it spiritual growth happening because of a relationship with God, the two of you working things out together, father sends son to win children, to claim a bride, and the bridegroom is coming. These are all relationship words. We want to be more spiritual, many of us. But you can't become more spiritual clearly just by imitating the superficial outer forms, lifestyles, and behavior of supposedly spiritual people. You can't do it by simply obeying the rules. Thing one that you can't cure with rules? Legalism. Thing one that you can't ever really treat as a rule? Becoming a more loving person inside yourself. Try obeying that one without God doing it with you, for you.
Any number of people may obey rules obsessively, yet remain nasty, weak, neurotic individuals you can't rely on for much of anything when it comes to actually interacting with them. In fact, if you break a rule, they will almost certainly treat you horribly. We all know people like that. The Bible is trying to go much deeper than mere behavior, and it's certainly not trying to transform the inner man by starting with the outer actions. No, the Bible is intended to help produce, with the Holy Spirit, an inner transformation, inspiration, direction, and vision, dare I say, relationship, that spills out into powering and directing a life. A life that will work with other people and what they need. One that is more spiritual, yet doesn't start with or end with overmuch focus upon behavior. The inner things of the heart are the focus, not the outward appearance. It starts with one's spirit and heart connecting with better ones, with God's. It doesn't start with rules. It isn't all about how behavior seems. It's about what it reveals about our connectedness to the person Jesus is. When I look back at the literally thousands of hours of Bible teaching I was given as a child, it's not so much that I think they taught us stuff that was wrong. It's more that I think their emphasis was weird, what they focused upon. We learned about Jesus, all right, but somehow it was mostly all about his death and the fact that it was our fault he had to die, because of our behavior, because of our inability to control and contain our sinful urges to do dangerous bad things, bad things like listening to Bon Jovi. So very, very much of what Jesus actually said and how he acted and interacted with others was swept away from center stage, out of the spotlight, into the wings, simply by saying, well, he was God and we're not, so... Or, well, that was for the Jews, so... Or, well, that's really talking about the future kingdom, so... So much of what Jesus said and did wasn't really stuff we focused upon. We were more interested in ourselves and our potential to keep rules or not, and the Apostle Paul agreeing with us about how to do church. Ruth writes, In my experience among the brethren, I don't remember hearing very much about Jesus. All we sang about and remembered and read about his death every Lord's Day morning, and indescribably precious those memories of worship are. But we didn't hear much about his life on earth, what he taught and what he did, and how he related to people, and what miracles he did. We certainly didn't talk much about his birth and resurrection because of the church holidays that celebrate those events. The words of our Lord were treated with rude disregard, glossed over, skipped altogether, or rested away in favor of St. Paul's epistles presenting assembly truth. I never knew Jesus Christ as a person until he was presented to me in Catholic Mass, in Methodist sermons, in church hymns, and in deep conversation with a non-brethren friend. I know what she means. Harvey said to me once that I needed to stop viewing God as only a figure, as an unattainable standard, and start letting him be the person he really is, you know, with a personality. As in fact, the inventor of the personality, the original template and source of it, of feelings and thoughts, of the sense of humor. Harvey said to interact with God throughout my day in a kind of game of catch or dance or game of tag, something interactive, even a kind of romantic love relationship, bride and bridegroom. Donald Miller, the author of Blue Like Jazz, feels strongly that if you present any method or system of steps or formula or doctrine to believe in in order to approach God, that you're missing something. 
he is strongly against bullet point or five-step methods to approach God or live life with. He feels there is mystery and an organic process to it all. He feels that the dynamic is relational and that the very existence of the human romantic relationship provides a real-world metaphor to help us understand the relationship God wants with man. Miller thinks why questions are too often avoided in favor of how and what questions in our process and method-obsessed culture. He thinks we talk as if decision-making and belief should only be the domain of the logical left half of the brain and nothing else should enter into it. Just the facts, ma'am. No feelings. But actually, we live and decide and act as whole beings, not as beings who use a tiny decision-making portion of our brain to decide with. Every bit of us gets a voice. Even a stiff back or an injured foot weighs in and is heard when we're deciding things. Not just the sensible bits. All of us. If we're emotionally healthy anyway. Don thinks that we invent a justification of my decision story afterward and pretend that's how the decision actually got made, when really, that's just something we made up to tell people and seem reasonable. He thinks the process by which we actually decide things is a bit beyond our own conscious thinking. I saw a movie, then drove past the Dairy Queen billboard with the kangaroo, then that song came on the radio, I thought about last summer back when we were dating, I almost hit a deer, I got home, my mother texted me about the cat, I put it in the garbage, and so I decided to buy this truck instead of taking the trip to Florida this year after all. Miller argues that we are far less rational than we pretend. There's more stuff going on than we will admit. We are very comfortable with the goddess father metaphor. We tend to focus on angry father with rules, pretty much exclusively, and we often overlook the Christ as lover metaphor entirely. Or perhaps we set it safely in the future, so we can leave it out of the past and present. The marriage supper of the Lamb? Fine. But that's later. Right now, I have to be very, very careful never to anger my heavenly father, or my earthly one, for that matter. In fact, we're even comfortable presenting God to others as some kind of unforgiving, raging, control-freak, abusive father figure. We present Jesus as a heroic mother, big brother figure who must save us from this brutal, bullying being by putting his fragile human body between our we selves and our father's boundless wrath over broken rules. And we're more than happy to call this the gospel, despite how the apostles speak of the whole situation. We present God to non-Christians in this way more than any other, in order to try to scare people into heaven, I suppose, as a solemn responsibility. We are, however, uncomfortable with viewing God the Son's giving up of absolutely everything and coming here where we are in order to live as we live and die as we die and let us all get to know him better as something romantic. His choice to live under the very limits that we struggle under daily, to not only know, but more importantly and deeply, to experience, participate in, and respond to our situation. His managing to ace the whole human life on earth thing, without cheating, making mistakes, or wrecking anything for anyone, including himself, or God the Father, who sent him to do this. His then sacrificing the accolades, power, freedom, and reward he had earned, in fact, sacrificing even the right to live out his full threescore and ten years, all to reach out and hand all of it to us. We somehow fail to view all this as the most incredibly romantic thing anyone has ever done. Relationship Steps Watchman Nee 20th century Chinese exclusive Plymouth Brethren evangelist and martyr was an entirely different man from Donald Miller. 
Nee had been part of what would eventually be known as the Taylor Hills exclusives, but when visiting England from China, he broke bread with a doctor and his wife who were associating themselves with Open Brethren, so James Taylor Sr. and others excommunicated Nee for the rest of his life to keep him from getting Open Brethren cooties on the exclusive Brethren worldwide. Nee spent the last 20 years of his life in prison in China and died there, still out of fellowship. His book, Normal Christianity, describes not a method or steps for approaching God, but rather sees in Romans chapter 6 through 8 a description of the stages one can expect in the process of drawing close to God relationally. Unsurprisingly, these stages seem to be replicated in the romantic relationships that mirrors that approach. Nee identifies the stages as A. Knowing B. Reckoning C. Presenting oneself and D. Walking in the Spirit So, with approaching God, Nee feels that A. First we come to know what's been done for us and what that gives us. We experience it as something only made possible because of what Christ did. Then this awareness just naturally changes our thinking to reflect this new reality. Things are different because of what Jesus did, and we know this. Note that need does not start with behavior. That comes later. We read James and want to start with works. Works come later, and only as an outflowing of what has changed within. Otherwise, there's outward stuff, all right, but nothing within besides a desire to pretend there is some Christ in there, to fake some faith. Nee goes on to say that B, then we don't simply know it as a fact, but as we live, reckoning it to be so, our life choices start to reflect it and the avenues and possibilities it opens up. We don't just know it, we assume it, and start to almost unthinkingly act according to it, as a real thing. C. Then, and we'd expect this to need to happen first, wouldn't we? We respond to this and present ourselves to Christ just as he presented himself to us. Presenting, in the relationship sense of, I'm not living just for me anymore. I choose to, from now on, be with you and help you get what you want and need. You're part of my priorities now. Jesus presented himself, submitting to torture, humiliation, and the end of his days on earth, hoping in part to get our attention, to catch our eye, by giving us exactly the thing that we needed and which we could only hope to get from him. He was planning to have a continuing relationship with us as a result of what this work started between us. D. Then, having made this commitment, to walk together. It is only natural to live out the rest of our lives in this way, together, and in consideration of the concerns and desires of the other. Note that this comes last, and it's not an overly self-conscious thing that keeps us focused on our behavior either, agonizing over what others might think of it. Our thoughts and our hearts are on the together instead. Copying rather than reckoning. I think most Christians that I meet are trying to skip the B, reckoning, stage. The part where they genuinely accept what Christ has accomplished as something that has indeed been done and which matters and works. Instead, they say should a lot. They're missing the part where what they know has some effect on how they think and decide things and live. In brethren speak, they believe, but can't rest in the knowledge. And so they do not rest. They fidget. They'll say what happened, but they can't reckon it or consider it a done deal. So they try to mimic the outer forms of, and give a trained outer imitation of A, knowing, instead of B, reckoning. 
because they can't do it. The fact that Christ's work was sufficient and successful in completely getting us off the hook with God as judge and into his good graces, not just for eternity, but for time as well, is just a lofty theoretical doctrinal fact to many of us. We're not quite grasping how much our fates, reputations, and worth really are tied up in Christ now, as far as God is concerned. So we claim to agree with it intellectually, but feel deep down like it misrepresents or oversimplifies our situation and obligations. We can't simply accept that it is so and think and live that way. We always add a but, a should, or something. We always leap to talk about responsibility. Because liberty and Christ having achieved a finished work scares us, and we want to help save ourselves each day. Is it important that many of us simply can't do B, can't reckon ourselves God's children? That we can't live today as if we are actually okay as far as God is concerned? We haven't given up trying to tow our car out of the river using only our own car. Because we've got to dive down there in our scuba gear and keep vainly turning that ignition key waiting for it to roll over, right? It's only sensible. And so we continue to live in fear of letting him down, of angering him, of disappointing him. This is how we insist upon living. We see nobility in it. We are trying to better our position by making sure we believe the right doctrine, agree with the right position in people, abstain from the appropriate things, and engage in all the appropriate behaviors, all so that one day, after death no doubt, perhaps then we can see, present ourselves to God without him being too disappointed or mad. All without having ever, d, walked with Christ in the reality of what changed when Christ came here having skated right past B, reckoning it to be so. Nothing changed in our view of things, apart from having added more guilt in hopes of it making us live more Christian, all without dealing with the reality of God the Holy Spirit, sent to us as comforter and strengthener, now that Christ isn't here in the same way he was before. We think we have to do most of it ourselves, alone. A new nature or a new creature? Here's what makes this problem obvious. The Bible talks about the old man, the person that we used to be, before we had anything to do with Christ and his efforts. Or to put it in terms a Christian can relate to, the same old person we end up being when we try to be a new person, without Christ being the inspiration and source of all that. The old man, that guy, the one we seem to keep being no matter what we vow, the guy who always vows stuff but then can't do it, that guy with that unworkable self-help method that we keep finding ourselves following, living a solitary life completely untouched by Christ deep down, with bad blood between us and God, and no way for either of us to fix that without Christ's intervention. Or, in Christian terms, trying to pretend Christ isn't a real person who's really helping us, and instead trying to earn grace and fix things ourselves, often through religious acts, like vows, with human willpower, generally from the outside in, fake it until you can make it, trusting in our own capacity for self-control, trusting human systems like church groups to catch us when we fail in that area. And Jesus would never have had to come here and die if all that stuff actually worked. This old approach and attitude is so different from what is presented in the Gospels that Paul the Apostle sees it not only as an old life, but the life of people we no longer are. The old man we once were. The vowing guy who couldn't keep those vows. 
When I was being kicked out of my church, concern was expressed at my apparently heretical doctrine that Paul says to reckon the old man dead and his works. Concern was expressed that I clearly felt that Paul was saying to reckon or think of myself as a new person living a new life, as anyone does when a life-changing epiphany of any kind takes hold. I thought I should get on with my life, free of the shame, fear, and dread. Trust Jesus. Be at peace about sin and self and God. To me, it was as simple as that. They warned me, with very serious faces and voices, that I must reckon the old nature to be dead, of course, but never, ever forget how very active the old nature is in our lives, and how we must never cease to fight it and keep it in the place of death. I was tempted to laugh at that point. felt like handing them a dictionary, open to the letter R, for reckon. Because my focus was on thanks be to Jesus, I get to live a new way, making me a new person, and it's about friggin' time. I'm tired of that old battle, that old mindset, that old guy, and his continual broken good intentions. But they insisted that my focus needed to perpetually be on my past situation and self, as some kind of pursuing zombie who would haunt my every step and rear up continually, making my life nothing more than a bad horror movie. I could never relax or be at peace or just live my life. I needed to vow to show up at their meetings and do it, or man, would I sin. That's how they claimed to live. That's how they wanted me to live. And they were concerned that my troubling attitude might rub off on younger, more impressionable people. The work of Christ didn't work, they seemed absolutely certain, until after we died. We had to wait the kingdom of heaven was absolutely not here yet. The great tribulation, after all, had not yet happened. Well, what good is the work of Christ if it doesn't help me or change anything now? And what does the Bible actually promise about it and about the kingdom? To their mind, the work of Christ moved us from the natural, unedified state of the average person into a hellish, divisive wrestling with self for the rest of my days on earth, daily vowing to keep him contained, waiting for death or the rapture so the work of Christ could kick in. In the meantime, religion, saved by grace, kept from sin by church. They even invented a special term so they could sub it in for the scriptural language. The term they invented was the old nature. They wanted to insist that rather than the work of Christ changing us right down to our very nature, our very motivations and approaches and responses to everything, that we merely had a second nature added on. They taught us that we now had a new nature and that the two natures coexisted like an angel and a devil on each shoulder. How's that for theology, the Warner Brothers cartoon way? So not a new man, not a new creature, not a new person with an irrevocable change. Same people, with a second nature added, like a second, tiny head sewed onto his neck. Vows to vow about controlling that old nature for sure. And they pretended this was how the Bible spoke about the thing. Two core natures? No man can have two essential natures. Your life changes and moves on, or it remains bemired in the same old crap. There is really no middle ground on stuff like that. I've either moved to Germany, or I'm still here. With this handy term, the old nature, they could say, never forget that the old nature is very much alive and very active in us. Handy. If they said things like, never reckon the old man to be dead, they knew there was a Bible verse that said the very opposite. Actually Approaching God Using the romance metaphor, I know that one approaches a woman thusly, 
This is a description of what happens and not a recipe or method. A. One knows that there is something between you that is worth pursuing. B. One accepts this and begins to think, plan, and act according to this knowledge, resting in the reality of it. C. One eventually presents oneself to the other person as being someone to be with. That's where it always falls apart if you're me. And D. You live lives that are now intertwined one with the other. Again, I think when I was a teenager and young 20-something, I was being encouraged that attempting be for real in this life, without trying to mostly fake it or help it along, was going too far, was too much to hope for with God. Christianity was stuff we knew, facts, doctrine, not stuff we could actually go for a ride in. It wasn't ready, didn't work in this life. We were to wait, and that didn't work for me. I believe the work of Christ could really save us right now. So what I have to ask now is, if the above approach is how one might deal with a woman, why would it work any differently when connecting with God? Maybe it's supposed to go A, B, C, and D. Just like that, right now. The Gospel Don Miller taught a class of Bible students in Toronto. He announced that he would give them a 40-minute gospel, but that he would skip one thing while he did this. They had to watch for it and tell him what he'd skipped afterward. So he started in. He talked thoroughly about sin and culpability, heaven, sin, hell, and sin, and all of that. He talked about the Christian responsibility to walk worthy of what we've been called to and not sin. The need to spread the gospel to others in a world characterized by sin. Then, 40 minutes in, he suddenly stopped and asked his Bible-taught students what he'd skipped. They had no idea. Predestination? Sanctification? Practical holiness? What Miller had skipped, in fact, in his gospel message was any message of Jesus at all. That Jesus came to earth for us. That he died. That there ever was anyone named Jesus. Any of that. Yet removing Jesus from a gospel message without a room full of Christians noticing wasn't terribly hard for Don to do at all. They were used to the focus being on us and our sin and doctrine that focused on daily sin management techniques and reminders of our guilt and sin. As for me, my understanding of the gospel started to sound different from what I heard every Sunday evening. I increasingly felt like I was being forced to follow forms of godliness but not look for any power or workability in any of it, to claim to be saved and pretend to be, but not to look to really be saved from anything much at all. Certainly nothing I was wrestling with this week. I was supposed to try to do that stuff myself by being devout, all of which rang increasingly false the more times I heard it. I needed to work out what the gospel was so that it seemed like good news. My grasp of the gospel. At the heart of Christianity is the idea that as human beings, we are imperfect and start out with a dysfunctional, disrupted relationship with a loving God who is worth knowing. A God who actually really wants to experience us and be experienced by us. A God who isn't just a rule giver, but someone who wants to create good in us, through us, for us, by us, all of that. Someone willing to send his son to save us. But the starting ground upon which we stand before God puts us in the position of someone who has made a false claim. That claim is that we are fine. 
that we can and will do and be good by ourselves. Actually, we're weird and weak. Our ancestor Adam, having overreached for the knowledge of good and evil, there is now that expectation that not only do we now know good and evil, but that we can now actually reliably do and be good as a result. We know what's good, so of course we can be it, right? There is the expectation that we are accurate images of God and that we can do just fine on our own and don't need God's help with anything. That's false ground to try and stand on. Makes us miserable. But we will be held responsible to come good on this claim unless we are willing to give up this ground rather than continue to vow to daily come good on it. God, for his part, loves us in a fatherly way and is quite willing to let us off the hook if we'll let him. But if we won't give up the charade, his hands are somewhat tied given how he chooses to work with us. In order for the two of us to meet halfway, we can't just continue stubbornly holding our distant, self-justified positions. We can't continue to be just fine. Because we're not, we need help to have things handled because we don't. We have to die to our rigid, inflexible, righteous vows, positions, and intentions, and be flexible and realistic enough to lay all of it aside and come to a central meeting point with God. If we want to let God into our lives, we have to lay aside our best intentions, the mere flesh we are, our religion, our rules, our image, our reputation, our human systems, our vows, and all of it. We can't rebel against our obligation, nor can we fulfill it. We aren't enough. There is rot at the root. We are weak and stunted and wounded and twisted deep down. We need Jesus. We need him so much. He came, he lived, he showed the way, and died in the position of a weak, flawed, dark-hearted sinner who needed to die, though he wasn't one and didn't. And then he rose again and is our advocate or lawyer with God. If we turn to him rather than being fine, God will, throughout our lives, transform us from the inside out into the image of Christ, who is God, fixing the problem that we are, without God, really bad images or representations of God. You want to avoid eternal perdition, being lost like a deleted file or repercussions? You need to get to know God, rather than try to do stuff on your own like a five-year-old trying to drive himself to school. Jesus saves us, not only in the sense of rescues us, but also in the sense of saves to the hard drive. And it's not just about afterlife. Daily life matters. The work of Christ doesn't just start working after our deaths or at the rapture, if you believe in that. It works right now. Good thing, too. We have to get through each day. And in terms used by Alcoholics Anonymous, we Christians again have to realize and admit that we have a problem and need help right now, too. We can't be fine all the time, nor fighting battles using our unredeemed willpower. We have to be born into an entirely new role, have to give up the old pattern of sometimes repeatedly asking Jesus to save us, then claiming to have been saved, but then living like we will need to save ourselves using rules because God won't, and kind of blaming God for not saving us when we're still weak, when we're still messed up. The lie in the garden is still with us, that God is holding good stuff back. So never mind him. We have to go get it ourselves, our way. We have doctrine, positions, and rules. We have vows, pledges, and promises. We have godly leadership and good teachers. Thing is, it's not that we choose Christ once and then follow rules. We don't have to stay the same, but still have to somehow follow rules anyway. 
We are not saved by keeping the rules. We are not blessed by keeping the rules. We let God and Christ flow into us each day so we can grow. And God changes us. In Sunday school, we sang songs about and memorized the Bible verse in Revelation that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. There are countless paintings of Jesus standing outside a door, waiting to be let in. The verse was presented to us as a gospel verse, as if it was for unchristian folks who really ought to see what a change is made by letting Jesus in. How sad that unchristian people left him out there. We Christians had let him in, and so he was in there with us. But Ruth pointed out on Facebook today that although we use this verse this way, in fact, in the context of the Bible, it is written to a group of true Christians, people God had a message for because they already had a relationship with him, the assembly at Laodicea, the group who thought they had everything they needed in terms of doctrine, the ones who thought they were fine but weren't, the lukewarm, complacent, smug group. Jesus is standing outside the door of that church, knocking, not being let in, not being missed, by Christians who are busy doing church without the Christ. We spoke out strongly against Laodicea, of course, in our Bible study, and we felt that we were the approved Revelation Church, the one at Philadelphia. The one that was once in Asia Minor, named the City of Brotherly Love in Greek, not the one with Rocky Balboa and Tom Hanks dying of AIDS. We tried so hard to obey the Bible rules. If we slacked off on keeping the appearance of a Christian lifestyle going, we would find ourselves Laodicea before we knew it. I was starting to wonder what it would be like to just let Jesus take the wheel, so to speak, and stop allowing my church culture to backseat drive my day all year long. The Gospel of Legalism Jake characterizes the gospel of legalism as Jesus loves you, now feel like shit for the rest of your life. When presented with this, legalists quickly respond to that observation by being more upset by his use of the S-word than by the suggestion that another gospel is being preached among them. A gospel which says we are saved by grace, our choosing Jesus, but that then we are blessed, kept, and matured spiritually and win souls to Christ by our further choosing to engage in religious activity, by vowing to do so, and following through with our willpower. The Apostle writes that if anyone preaches another gospel other than the gospel of grace, that they are to be accursed. And then he repeats that curse, cursed be. In Galatians, Paul says that he and the others did not submit to the legalists so that the truth of the gospel would continue among them rather than another gospel supplanting it, a legalistic gospel. Later in Galatians, he says that he wishes those guys trying to force rules such as circumcision upon new, often Gentile Christians would simply cut their own dicks right off rather than bothering new Christians about their foreskins. But if Jake said the S-word in front of a lot of Christians, they'd sure enough quote Ephesians to try to justify their acting like the Galatians were. This is why, I guess, I'm starting to take legalism so seriously. I think we always treat it a bit like a frat boy saying, well, Chet doesn't have a drinking problem. He's not a bad guy. He just gets a bit rapey and drunk drivey when he's had a few. He means no harm. And yet harm is done. I think Jesus and Paul take legalism far more seriously than we do. 
People keep telling us to take things like elections and military action overseas and abortion and gay marriage more seriously. Posting fiery alliterative things on the internet with titles like seduced by the serpent, yoga and the devil's door, and coming out of the closet under the stairs, horrible homosexual satanic subtext in Harry Potter by Jesus Killer Rowling. And James firmly posts on Facebook, If openly active homosexuals are even allowed to participate in this forum, it will become the scriptural duty of every Christian to leave. But I don't hear a similarly powerful, dogmatic chorus of voices telling us to take legalism seriously at all. I don't hear people teaching that it's dangerous or that it's anything that might concern our Savior. I'm always looking for people and books which do take it as seriously as they take things like yoga and Harry Potter. But I'm not seeing that same focus on legalism. I know. I, only I. Stuff that's got to go. In my meeting, we thought we knew what good and what Christian look like. We thought we knew what it dressed like. I think as people trying to not be Laodicean, we need to reach the point where we stop disagreeing with the source of all good, the judge of all the earth, about what is good, what is fair, how we're doing, and our ability to properly be what we are created to be. As to getting into heaven, unchurched folk have to lay aside, but I tried as hard as I could, and that's too hard, and but he made me, and that's not fair, and you wouldn't throw the book at a guy like me, and St. Pete wouldn't turn me away from heaven, and so on. To us, they sound like ten-year-olds. Perhaps harder still, we Christians have to lay aside, if I follow along with my church culture, imitating the outer forms of devout people, I just might be able to meet God's exacting standards for what a Christian is supposed to be, or close enough that he won't do his job and call it like it is. And then maybe he'll like me and bless me today. Christ or Christianity that's a much finer distinction to make than drunken, lying, thieving sex addict or Christian. Yet it was a distinction I certainly had to make. Time to review some stuff. Like I've said, what God did in incarnation as Jesus was to lay aside his right to judge and his place as God and take on a body and a human position with all of its temptations, stressors, and limits. He then walked around, not judging, not saying any of the things that would signal that he was closing the book on humans and giving up. And instead, he spent his time talking to people and putting out his hand and offering healing, insight, wisdom, forgiveness, and helping to get them started on a better path. You know, stuff that we're supposed to do for people we meet, even though we're not the Son of God. Best of all, Jesus offered to alleviate each person's duty to meet God's impossible standard as codified in the Mosaic Law. He didn't deny that the people he spoke to had sins, nor did he require them to make amends for them. He didn't say, stop sinning right now, and if you do, your past sins will then be forgiven you. He just told them their sins were forgiven without them doing anything at all. Often they were just looking to have a crippled leg healed, and he offered the forgiveness of sins unasked. Jesus lived a whole human life, not as God who judges, having given that position up for a time, but as God down here living a human life so we can get to know him better. For our part, as human beings, we have the chance to live no longer as human beings who fail and are judged if we can't meet God's standards. We have to live our lives having given that up or died to it, as the Apostle Paul would put it. We have to live as children God is helping out and showing stuff to, which is obviously awesome. We get a learner's permit for life. 
God becomes driving instructor rather than driver's test administrator. God as Jesus is born human and goes around studiously not being God, so it's a fair demonstration of humanity. He says things like, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. He tells us to be born anew, to live our daily lives as new creatures. People who are no longer claiming, nor are responsible, to meet God's quite reasonable, but quite beyond us, standards for how a being created in his image should respond, both to him and to others like created. Because he's going to help us grow toward that, not by pretending to be better, not by vowing to act as if we were better, not by punishing ourselves with shame every time we're not better, by being made better, by God, our Maker. Is Romans 7 the best we can hope for? When Paul writes to the Romans, the part we tend to call chapter 7 has a section which artistically paints the picture of a human being who has fully realized his own limits, a man who is now fully in possession of the understanding that he's not going to be able to satisfy God without the help that is offered from on high. The description is very clear. Paul can will, want, or decide to do good things, vow to be strong and kind and wise and meek, but all he's got is his current self to try to do it and be it with his limited willpower and insight and heart, his flesh. The term the flesh is a metaphoric description of man at his flawed best, falling short and being incomplete despite his best efforts, trying to be a perfect creature of spirit, but being a meat bag in the end. It's failing to walk according to what is, to what God wants and what would be good. With only the flesh to rely on, man is too weak, too childish, too foolish, too dark, too incomplete, too blind, and too twisted to deliver on these good things with any consistency. The flesh loves carefully put together systems and plans and vows. It loves statements of intent that it will never deliver upon, empty mission and vision statements, ambitious resolutions. It loves committees making lofty plans. Human beings know that having theft and adultery, drug addiction, prostitution, child molestation, robbery, poverty, and the exploitation of others in the world are bad, bad things. We know that having generosity, charity, safety, fidelity, health, and comfort for everyone would be really good. We agree about all that, no matter who we are. What we can never agree upon is precisely how to fix the bad and make things good. Because we don't actually know how, nor are we willing or able to do what it would take. We work, we do research, we donate money, we have meetings, we raise awareness, and the world remains messed up. We act like we can legislate or fund morality and spiritual health, which isn't working out very well. And what is true on a global level is also true on an individual level. Man knows what good would be, but can't be it, despite any number of plans, vows, and rules. He knows what bad is, and can't stop being it and being involved in it. There is no human system on the individual or global level that's going to fix things. We can't even fix our systems, let alone what they themselves are designed to fix. Not hospitals, not jails, not governments, not schools, not churches, not charity organizations. We need God. Every time Paul says, I hereby resolve to be better in this way and not do or want to do any of these bad things anymore, he then finds that there is something rotten right through at the core of his infrastructure. He finds that he is weak and corrupted and it all goes wrong every time eventually. 
The best of intentions fail to materialize in the harsh light of day, and troubling tendencies toward dark, petty, weird, destructive behavior are seen. The law of Moses is good in that it perfectly presents a codified picture of what God expects as a bare minimum from his children. It does not primarily present how to be good. It mainly presents how not to be bad. Not how to excel, just avoiding what would constitute failure. The best it can offer is, if one were somehow able to keep from doing the things it describes as bad, then one has not done bad. Zero sum. You're just not bad. The Mosaic Law does not justify a man, nor can any human created one. A few people who claimed to have kept the law came and spoke to Jesus. Each one felt keenly that despite keeping the law, something was missing. Kept isn't as good as fulfilled the reason for their even being the law. They hadn't broken rules, but they didn't get it. They hadn't done bad things, but this didn't make them good people who did good things. God knew what he was doing when he didn't lay a responsibility to be good or perfect on the Israelites. He was making a big point that human beings couldn't even keep from doing bad, stupid, and weak things throughout their lives. Not without help, without collaboration and cooperation from him. Point taken. What now, though? Spoiler. The law can be summed up in terms of loving one's God and one's neighbor. Failures to keep the law are failures to love. And love that merely keeps us from hurting, exploiting, or ignoring others isn't very impressive love at all. Shadow Self One of Carl Jung's contributions to modern psychotherapy is the idea of a shadow self. The concept is simply this. There are parts of our personalities, of our inner selves, which we can't face. We are tempted to pretend they do not exist. There are habits or choices we are secretly drawn to, which we want to tell ourselves we actually detest. Sounds a bit like Romans 7 already. And it's up to us what percentage of our unflattering inner selves we will pretend does not exist and will refuse to deal with. The more of these darker parts of us we push far back into the blackest corners of ourselves, the more they are off our radar and will do whatever they like back there in the dark. They usually start repeatedly manifesting in troubling ways which are as much a surprise to us as to anyone looking on. The sum total of this rejected self stuff forms what Jung thought of as one's shadow self. We create a strong shadow self by consigning a really significant part of us to supposed non-existence, pretending none of that's really real, or at least nothing we're going to be looking at or thinking about, or that we can handle it by repressing it rather than coming to terms with it. What this will do is to cause us to project, so that the dark parts of our own selves are soon all we can see in others. Our eyes become full of all that darkness. The more we fail to accept the very existence of these darker parts of ourselves, the more we meet our own weaknesses everywhere we turn, in everyone we meet. Paul speaks of a concept quite like the Jungian shadow self when he writes, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And further explains, For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil that I would not, that I do. He expresses how easy it is to have noble ambitions and resolve to achieve them, but how impossible it is to live as if the darkness were not present in him, and actually do that. In a bit of a Yoda-like way, he says, For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. No matter how lofty, religious, scientific, or sensible the plan to improve, no matter how heartfelt the vow to do it, 
all comes down to wishful thinking and empty New Year's resolutions in the end. It all comes down to pretending we have more say than we really do and what we will and actually do and feel in the near future. Eventually, the best laid plans of mice and men go seriously sideways. The answer to Paul's dilemma is not acts of piety or the imitation of outer forms of religious behavior. It is not renewed vows, self-flagellation, penitence, law, religion, self-loathing, and agonizing over his own wretchedness. It is not pretending that he can just say no when he ought to. Instead, he reaches out for the hand of God extended to him at the end of Christ's arm to help Paul in this very situation. God comes to earth as Jesus to say, Here, you're doing it wrong. This is how it's done. It's not the letter, but the spirit of it that's the key. And it's love. The letter kills, it will condemn you. But the spirit of God's love that I manifest here is intuitively grasped. Try it. It is quite contagious, and the truth of it, able to set you free from all of this. So relax a bit, and stick with me. We'll get it all worked out. To further step apart from the rigid, adversarial roles that aren't helping, by his actions, God says to his children, You have the knowledge of good and evil. You can identify them. No longer innocent, you don't feel very good about yourself, and you feel naked before me. But I'd like to help. If you agree to stop trying to handle all this yourself, if you stop relying on hiding in the bushes and wearing fig leaf aprons to try to fix your existential problem, I'd be overjoyed to remove from you that responsibility to independently manage to do good rather than evil. Then we'll move ahead under a completely different understanding, in a completely different relationship. That's going to do a much better job of getting us both where we want. I call this innovation grace. Paul thanks God that through him, in the form of Jesus Christ, Paul is delivered from the unenviable position he is in. He no longer lives a life haunted by the fact that without any help from God, he will screw up. He's accepted that he will screw up, admitted it. God and Paul have agreed that this is the case and have decided to work together to deal with it. God, as Jesus, has redirected any of the judgment that God as judge would otherwise be responsible to aim Paul's way onto himself. Sin isn't any longer just Paul's problem. It's their problem. And God has come here as Christ to deal with it. And it's dealt with. So Paul screws up. He steals an O'Henry bar from Walmart. He loses his temper with someone who doesn't deserve it, feels superior to that poor soul, and cusses him out just to feel better about himself. The whole time, he lusts after the wife of someone he knows, rather than going and winning the heart of a woman he can then call wife. As a human being, equipped with the stolen knowledge of good and evil, he knows that all this isn't good. If things with God hadn't all changed, he'd be in some real trouble now he'd be completely responsible to not do and be that fleshly, sinful, stupid, mean kind of person. His true nature revealed to be not as advertised, he'd stand accused, convicted, and awaiting punishment. But the punishment is gone. Even the accusation is gone. You see, Paul is no longer responsible to never sin. He has laid aside that responsibility, that understanding, that ground, that role. This doesn't mean that if he sins or acts stupid, weak, corrupt, or fleshly, that this is now a good thing. It doesn't mean that his failure isn't bad. But it isn't any more Paul's obligation to never do bad things or else. Together, he and God can address the root of the problem, where the stupid, mean, and bad actions come from. He can grow increasingly into a person who shows more and more of the loving spirit of Christ 
and is less and less mean, angry, weak, and corrupt. And while he grows, the pressure is off because he's got as many mulligans, as many do-overs, as he needs. This is called grace. It doesn't make sinning okay. It just means we have a special arrangement whereby when we do things that aren't okay, it's handled. It is very possible for Paul to lose sight of his new arrangement with God and God's new role in his life. It's possible for Paul to start mistakenly reckoning himself to be that same old person, the one who didn't have the arrangement with God. It's possible for Paul to start to live as if Christ had not come, to take up the responsibility to be good on his own, armed with religious activity, to start trying to save himself again. It is very possible for him to, quite apart from God, adopt a bunch of ritualistic behaviors intended to brainwash him into stopping doing the bad things that he genuinely, deep down, actually wants to do and doesn't know why. To try to shove all that dark, weak stuff down where no one can see it, hoping that will get him through the day. To start building a truly terrifyingly large shadow self, rather than working with God to redeem his inner self. The more Paul cuts himself off from parts of his real, imperfect inner self, the more divided he becomes. Jesus pointed out that a house divided against itself will fall. He said this as part of explaining how stupid the sensible accusation that he was casting demons out of people by using demonic power was. Jung really has a point about the shadow self thing. Men love darkness rather than light, Jesus said, because their deeds are evil. When you've got something to hide... You love having secrets, taboo topics, and lots of shadows to stand in. Jesus said this. Sometime later, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde about a man who tries to scientifically remove all the dark, ugly, and bad parts of himself. He hopes to use drugs that will ensure that only the good, handsome, and noble parts of him will be seen. In so doing, he repeatedly becomes and lets loose an ugly, violent, selfish little monster on the city. Whoops! Then he tries to repress that evil, weird, dark little self, which just makes it go on nightly rampages in the dark. When religion tries the same thing in real life that Henry Jekyll tried in science fiction, exactly the same result is seen. Failed attempts to control the uncontrollable. Moving in religious circles can very quickly engender competitive piety, resulting in pretense, in repression, in self-delusion, self-ignorance. Addictions The thinking of Carl Jung led somewhat indirectly to the thinking of the men who formed Alcoholics Anonymous. For this particular addictions program to work, it is essential that people are able to let the cold light of day shine upon the dark corners of their inner selves and to walk in the truth of what's really going on. There could be no more useless addiction program, let's call it Abstinence Rocks, than one at which people merely sing songs about how great it is not to be addicted, and then never let on whether or not they are actually, personally, struggling with addiction in any way, then drink heavily sweetened fancy coffee and go home. That would be pretty ineffective, but many churches are basically that for people addicted to the various trappings of human weakness or sinning. Imagine the opposite, though. An addictions program, let's call it Never, Never forget, forget What, what you, you Are, that only allows addicts who are clean to participate in any way. 
one which feels that the best way to deal with these clean addicts is to fill each meeting with numerous reminders to feel deep, unrelenting shame for what they've done in the past, and then to instill a careful, dutiful, studied dread as to what future missteps they might take, and then to drink bitter, stale coffee and go home crestfallen. This would be equally pointless and truly horrible, but many churches are basically that. When I meet Christians, I must admit I tend to judge them on how much of themselves they are able to look directly at, talk about, and be, and how many of their words and responses are them talking, rather than an imagined self, pretended self, hope for self, or church-trained self. I think of them as more alive if they are being more of themselves, and less alive if most of them is secretly bricked up, wailing like Fortunato in the wine cellar. With too many, it's like they're letting themselves feel free to be only the 5% of themselves that they're able to deal with. Their eyes show the strain of keeping 95% of their deepest, darkest, truest, most passionate self secret, crushed flat, relegated to the shadows with no hope of any change. No change apart from their outer shells getting more and more brittle and Mr. Hyde going on more twisted nightly prowls. What percentage of these people's selves does God accept? What percentage is Jesus willing to work on? How much of that will the work of Christ redeem? The lacks in these not-really-being-themselves-much people are not usually seen in their thinking so much as in their emotions being unconvincing. This is due to them not being their own real feelings coming from their own real selves. They say a lot of trained response things. They delight in jargon and cliché. You're never talking to the real them. Is Christ working in them? Hard to tell. The work of Christ working. If the work of Christ works for you, then the idea is to be able to sit down whenever you want with a friendly God and let him shine the light of truth on anything inside you that he thinks needs looking at. I don't very frequently speak with those Christians who explain away all manner of messed up psychology and horrible behavior with, Jesus forgives me, so don't judge. But I hear they're out there too. Apparently they rock, or so their t-shirts claim. But I grew up with the other kind, and I still meet them everywhere. The ones who aren't very aware of their inner selves because they're afraid to look. God is light. We know that. But God doesn't shine himself into your dark corners because he wants to remind you of things he is really hoping to help you feel shame about. He does it to make you free from more and more stuff through demystifying and revealing the true nature of it all. He does it to make you more yourself, more what he intended you to be when he thought, hey, you know what? I think I'll make a your name here. When God says, hey, you're doing that wrong, he means, hey, you're being your name here wrong. Because God is trying to help you be your name here properly. So contrary to the best wisdom of those who sought to protect my church culture from stuff I was reading in Romans, I eventually went off on my own and decided it is scriptural and healthy to view ourselves as dead to the old problems and obligations before God to not sin. I think it is scriptural and healthy to view ourselves as reborn into a new way of living and dealing with God, not just one extra nature added to our foul old one leaving us with two. I get to be a new person, one whose sin is covered, handled, dealt with, someone in an utterly new relationship. This was of much concern to many at my church, and people were warned not to speak with me. 
And for my part, I wasn't so much happy and at peace with my new understanding of the gospel as I was angry I'd been taught differently for decades, annoyed that people were trying to talk me out of it, and furious that I was eventually punished for it. Was I really suffering for the gospel of grace at the hands of Christians? And not just me, many, many others? Did anyone in our church ever preach a gospel that was kind of similar to what I was starting to believe? Sometimes words like that were said, all right, but actions speak louder than words, and most of our airtime seemed to be devoted to the big but they wanted to put after the gospel. It seemed to me absolutely like we were being told that we were saved by grace after a life on earth was over, but blessed and set free from troubles by attending meeting and by our own vows, willpower, devotion, obedience, and acts of piety during the lives we were currently living. And so that's the message I'd heard. And the fact that when I stopped listening to it, people of power got concerned and a systematized ostracizing of me and people like me happened seems to provide evidence as to what gospel was really being put forth. Another gospel, not one of grace. News that was too good. So I gradually came to feel it is unscriptural and unhealthy to view ourselves as divided by the work of Christ into two halves or natures. One of which, the 5% half, has turned over a new leaf and vowed things. The other of which, the 95% half, being one Christ hasn't saved us from at all. So for the rest of our lives, we must wrestle with it daily from the moment we open our eyes in the morning to the moment we close our eyes and repose at night. I came to get very sick of hearing that tired old perversion of the gospel over and over and over. I got tired of a gospel of shame and obligation and bondage to church culture. I came to believe that the work of Christ worked, that if we're trying to do it ourselves, then we're doing it wrong, because we're not qualified, and that our works don't work. I came to believe that God is ceaselessly, endlessly creative, that he insists upon and delights in staggering diversity. Just look at how many different kinds of butterflies, berries, and beetles he felt it important to design. That he made us all very different from each other, and that none of us ought dare presume to know God's direction, path, or intentions for others that we oughtn't to question his design of our own selves, let alone of others, and that we really needed to learn how to accept and love people who were really different, felt really differently, thought really differently, and acted really differently from us. I came to believe that, in a way, knowing God will make you more, not less, different from his other children, that there is no one-size-fits-all path you can tell people are wandering from when they're far from you and where you're walking and mottos, platitudes, and mass-produced and distributed canned attitudes increasingly wouldn't cut it anymore. I started to hate seeing them on little plaques and calendars and bumper stickers. I still hate to see them on Facebook, photoshopped onto sunsets, taking nuanced, ancient wisdom from the Bible and turning it into something sappy, one-sided, and dumb. I decided all that needed to get tossed out in favor of something realer, truer, and more alive. But that other people who are into all that ought to be left alone to enjoy it. And I decided that the God of this grace-based gospel message from the Bible was a God worth connecting to. I try to connect with God. What I'm going to do now is tell you what I did back in the day. I don't know if all of it worked. But an indisputable fact is that today I am not dead and I often talk to Christians. 
I know God. We work together. I get in tune with what he's up to and move more in sync with his efforts and timing and agenda than formerly. Love's coming from him, and I connect to others and am involved in a whole network or web of Christians which has worked and lasted far beyond any mere church system. This is, one might say, far better than might have been expected. I wasn't supposed to be able to be here and do this today, without my church culture, without the support and approval of those into whose spiritual keeping I was put, and out from whose spiritual keeping I was pushed. But I am here. Some of my friends are not. But I grew up feeling like I'd already met God as much as one could. I thought that the brethren experience meant I didn't need to change my thinking, wouldn't find my life in his grip in troubling ways that wouldn't make sense to brethren people, wouldn't know what fear of him is like due to a more direct connecting to him, and so on. But that was all wrong. I had to meet God, alone, and outside meeting expectations and settings, terrifyingly more deeply than all the intro-to-God stuff I'd already had, and I had to get swept away from it all with him. I had to go through all of that, like anyone does, like you do. If you're doing work on your belief system and your life in general, it helps to get objective. You have to get an outside view of things, your family, your culture, yourself. That can be hard. We think everything's just, you know, normal. We aren't aware of half of the things we're assuming. We don't, in many cases, know what we actually believe. Not really. We can't tell belief from simply saying we agree with our cultural community about things. So it helps to get to a place where you can have a clear-headed look at it and let what should be obvious observations on it all finally start to come to you. Let it occur to you. Let God show you everything. So I did that, eventually. Part of that is you turn your brain on and let it run for a few years despite the objections of almost everyone despite constant predictions of impending atheism. Let the epiphanies pour in, rather than trying to stave them off or block them out with church teaching and scripture scraps. It wasn't until I talked to any number of other people who believed any number of other things that I truly started to learn what I really believed myself deep down about any number of things. What I really believed wasn't what I thought. For instance, I believed that if I found myself having a whole lot of fun, that God or reality was waiting nearby and was about to leap out from somewhere and squash it or me, like my dad and my church seemed to delight in doing. I kind of believed that God was more like George R.R. Martin than J.R.R. Tolkien. Thing is, I actually didn't know I believed this until I spoke with someone who didn't realize what his own belief was. He believed that God was standing at his elbow looking for ways to make him important, successful, and happy all day long, like his dad and his church had done. He really seemed to believe that God was pretty much Richie Rich's father and that he was Richie Rich. It's a good thing we talked. I was able to contrast my unexamined beliefs about how things worked with the dizzyingly different beliefs that he had. Images of God It seemed important to work out who exactly I thought God was. So back in the day, I wrote a song to remind myself of a few views of God that I was obviously wrestling with. The first verse talked about how I was tempted to view God as if he were some kind of Santa Claus figure who knows when you are sleeping and knows when you are awake and certainly knows if you've been bad or good, so be good or go to hell. 
A similar view to this one was God as vending machine. You put in prayerful requests backed up by careful lifestyle choices, and he or it spits out success and blessing for you. Cheap little bubblegum blessings, earned gumball grace. I wouldn't know until decades later that some people preach what is called the prosperity gospel. It's all about how God wants to make us wealthy, so if we want to be wealthy, we should give lots of money to people preaching the prosperity gospel, because God will give our investment back to us in spades. Honest, he will, because he longs to make us wealthy just like Jesus was. The second verse of my song was about how I was also very tempted to view God as if he were some kind of stereotypical Jupiter or Zeus, angry beard in the sky, lightning bolt throwing father kind of person, angry, abusive, waiting to pounce on human lives, occasionally confusingly willing to help, but inevitably turning on us in the most mercurial of ways and definitely delighting and smiting like someone who hands you a warm, fresh-baked pie and then punches you in the neck after you take your first bite because you unknowingly used the wrong fork. The third verse of the song was the most personal. It was about how I couldn't seem to stop viewing God as being more or less like my own father, the one I grew up with. We all tend to project daddy issues on our view of God. Author Don Miller grew up with an absentee father, and he writes about how it is therefore hard for people like him to identify with all the father imagery in the Bible. If God was like his father, Miller said, God would be gone all the time, generally smell like beer and cigarettes, and usually need a shave and a shower. Now, observations like this were ones that I was trained to bridle at, to be put off by and draw away from. Irreverent, troubling, making a joke of the things of God. But once I got more serious about God, I knew there was a whole lot of crap to wade through before I understood nearly enough, and that I'd use whatever tools I needed to get through it, including humor. That's how serious I was. So I started slogging through stuff that I would have turned my nose up at before. And I found there were positively priceless gems in stuff that all kinds of people, not too far afield, were thinking. So I broadened my reading slightly beyond the Brethren Believers bookshelf selections. Once I got over the idea that I had to already know I'd agree with everything before I would open a book, I was able to open a lot more books. And what Don Miller said made me think about my own daddy issues and my father in heaven. My earthly father was there for me. In fact, he was always there. He was a teacher, so if I had a day off, he had that day off too. And he was always wanting me to toil for no particular reason I could discern in the hot sun in August or outside for the afternoon in Canadian January. There was no work, really, that had to be done once he came home from his job teaching kids, but he spent a lot of time creating work that could be done outside. None of it involved fixing up our house or tidying anything. And he had a big temper and did a lot of shouting. He'd grown up working outside all the time, so he thought that normal kids worked outside all year long. Nothing else was normal. My wanting to read books, write, draw, and make things with my hands was not normal to him. It made him worry. I might be gay. This made him worry a lot. He did his best to make me useful, to grow to be the kind of person who didn't mind manual labor much and did it all day long, the kind of man who would change his own oil rather than paying someone else to do it, the kind of man who would cut his own grass rather than paying a neighbor kid to do it, a useful, capable, hard-working man who could rewire and replumb his own house without help. Well, this left me only one option, really. I did my best to be useless. We fought over this throughout my childhood and adolescence, and it was a fight I eventually won. It took a lot of hard work, 
well, the opposite of that. The point is I won, which may be the man I am today. No idea how to replumb a basement. Involves pipes or something. I know how to change the oil in my car, though, and I don't. But like God, my dad was always there when I had a problem, when something was broken or that kind of thing. Unlike God, as soon as I hoped or dreamed or was happy, he didn't support or assist this, but instead tried to let me down easy to be sure I didn't get too hurt when my hopes invariably, he expected, did not come true. Because my father couldn't hope. He couldn't dream. He couldn't do much of anything just for fun. He couldn't be happy. He couldn't relax. Happy was for other people, not us. Christians sacrifice happiness so God will be happy. Guess what all this has done to my views of exactly who God is. Here's that song I've been talking about. Woo! 
are so much the products of our environments. And having our fathers and our childhoods and genetic code only adds to that, of course. Step one was knowing what I believed. Step two was much harder. It required time and Christ. Changing what I believed when it didn't make any sense. So it really helped to see what and how other people believed or didn't believe. And happily, there was a very helpful, happy byproduct from understanding other different people more. It's this. Getting a really clear idea of how it all worked for them meant I could start to connect to them. That's an empathy thing, a love thing. And I got to view my own self and my own beliefs through their eyes almost. That's like having someone around to tell you if you've got spinach in your teeth or if you've tucked your shirt in the back of your panties, spiritually speaking. And we all do things like that, spiritually speaking. That's why it helped to have people like Harold around. Harold talks about relationship. One time, I told God I really needed more Christians I could connect to in my life. Then I ordered a pizza. Harold delivered it. We started to meet up a couple of times a week to talk about Christ and Christians and church and life and stuff. Harold, you see, was introduced to God by a Brethren Outreach program, then waded out into warmer, more charismatic ecclesiastical waters. He had once been a pastor and had a very rough life before, during, and after doing that job for over a decade. He saw the extremely seamy and pointless, preening, bureaucratic, profit-hungry, political and self-deluding side of church life, but he didn't give up on it, not as a concept in theory anyway doesn't mean he can find anywhere to go Sunday morning either. Talking to him pushed me emotionally to places I didn't normally go, spiritually speaking. Stuff that church services don't even begin to scratch the surface of. Harold seemed to know things about living a Christianity that is realer, truer, and more alive. Harold told me he doesn't think it's best for a Christian to wake up and simply say, Hmm, now what do I feel like doing today? Just as if there were no God with an interest in one's life. Now that kind of point is easy, even for someone like me to grasp. I was always taught that this was the wrong way to do things. It was always presented to me as a teenager as a very unchristian, worldly mindset that we were to sacrifice entirely to God. We were to always and only seek to do what He wanted. We weren't to want things in my culture. The Lord is thy shepherd, thou shalt not want things. Harold disagreed with this idea. In fact, Harold felt a Christian should not either, as I'd been taught, wake up and say, Oh Lord, I do hereby sacrifice my own desires and will to do nothing at all whatsoever until you make clear unto me precisely what you would like me to do today for you so I can just go and do it and then come back and tell you I did it or tried to. Instead, Harold said it was good to wake up and say, So Lord... What are we going to do today? Let's go do some stuff. What do you think of us going and trying this? Like a date. Harold solidified my suspicion that many of us were in a tragicomedic standoff with God that went rather like this. Lord, why won't you tell me what you want me to not do today? Just tell me. I'm ready and willing to sacrifice it all to you. Honest, I am. Dude, I need you to want something. Then we'll talk. I love you and want to know all about and give you the desires of your heart, first discussing how workable and good they sound in the long term, perhaps. But you don't appear to genuinely have any desires, which means you're not really being alive much yet. And my son died so you could live and be free. 
and you're not doing that really, which is a waste. Be a person. Let the identity I intended for you, the personality I have designed, start to flourish and grow. Don't try to thwart my design by stifling your identity and burying your personhood in the ground or hiding it under a basket. I've made it for a reason. I want return on that investment. I am. Now you be. Oh, Lord, just tell me who not to be, and I'll do my best to not be that person. Tell me who and what not to want, and I promise I'll do nothing at all today but not want that hard as I can. I gave up Sarah for you. I gave up irony for you. I gave up New York and art. I want to not do whatever you don't want in my life, Lord. You know, you're really being a very bad date. No fun at all. And I built some fun into you. I remember distinctly. Where is it? Did you give that up too? It's a good thing I love you. Because according to Harold, our relationship with Christ, with God, is supposed to be intimate, interactive. It's supposed to be a two-way, growing, negotiated thing with two people in it, rather than being seen purely in terms of power and say, for one person or the other. Because it's not meant to be an abusive or controlling relationship. And abusive relationships are the only ones that are all about one person getting all the say. And many of us had those kinds of relationships at home and at church. And we try to recreate that familiar dynamic everywhere we go, at work, at home, with God, either with us on top or under that controlling thumb, depending. Melody writes, I didn't know you could have a real friendly relationship with God. Everyone I knew seemed to be so formal with him, praying in King James English, etc., no one talked about God or Jesus like they were real people. We talked a lot about living in the fear of the Lord, which I still don't feel has been adequately defined. Our common usage of fear is too Old Testament smitey for me, and from my own reading, I just don't see that that's how Jesus is. He's long-suffering and forgiving, not waiting to smite me. It's supposed to be, like any marriage, Harold said, something other than merely a boss and employee or master and servant relationship. More intimate than that. More of us tossed into it, not less. Like Harvey told me about how it should be like singing a song and seeing if the other person reacts. It's supposed to be interactive. There's more than enough of God to go around. So we need to toss our whole selves into interaction with him wholeheartedly. We have to be our whole selves as hard as we can and grow to be more all of that stuff. And often, that involves feelings. Feelings. On the front of a church in Ottawa, the one that caused the two worldwide brethren divisions in the Tunbridge Wells brethren in my lifetime, were the words God is love on the one side and God is light on the other. When I made the online cartoon of the division, I had the building tear in half between people who wanted to emphasize God as love, emotion, tolerance, freedom, and connectedness, and the ones who wanted to emphasize God as light, doctrine, rigidly upheld standards, structure, and correctness. One side was labeled, God is light, and the other was labeled, God is love. My thinking about this sharp divide down the middle of my church started with listening to my father, who was deeply invested emotionally in what went on at our meeting, particularly Bible reading meetings. It was all that got talked about much of the time in our house. 
My dad felt threatened by people who only wanted to talk about the love side of things and neglected responsibility, accountability, and standards of righteousness. Once Albert Hayhoe, a traditionalist patriarch figure, died, my dad felt like he was alone at reading meeting Thursday nights. He felt he was the only one not stressing a bunch of wishy-washy, permissive, liberal, modern stuff about God loving us no matter what. He wanted to hear a hardline stance about separating from this world and not entertaining ourselves in it, about being a good testimony by being a peculiar people, and about being heavenly people who weren't to act earthly. He wanted the Hayo preaching to live on, though Albert Hayo had died, and what Albert Hayo could teach charmingly, with a warm, twinkly smile and a great deal of earnestness, my father could not, neither could either of Albert's surviving brothers. Our meeting was, at that point, sharply divided between people who thought just like my dad and people who went the other way. Was God light, or was he love? A division was about to happen. Obviously, the Bible covers a wide range of topics and talks about them in a number of multifaceted, almost contradictory-sounding ways. It doesn't concern itself with these little biases and petty agendas of ours, and it doesn't stick mainly only to either heart or head stuff. It's broader than that. But my father felt like the brain, the spirit, the discerning, distinguishing, informed mind had gone out of our church with Albert Hayhoe, and that now it was just fuzzy, time-filling, empty-headed, simple-minded, feel-good Sunday school nonsense. I think he had a bit of a point, too, given what I heard there five times a week. But his efforts to continually balance these feel-good messages with what must have come off as feel-bad ones didn't go over well, and he got kangaroo court backstabbed and secretly silenced under pain of excommunication if he didn't remain as mute as a woman while all his peers sat all around him talking at meetings. He was expected to show up and listen to them discussing parts of the Bible, which increasingly were just jumping off points for what I recall as nothing more than time-filling stuff that didn't really add up to anything or make me think or feel anything at all. I annoyed him pretty deeply one time, shortly before he got silenced when I was about age 11. I said that rather than balancing all the positivity and love stuff by presenting the other side, that maybe he could demonstrate what being balanced looked like himself, without reference to them. I said if they were showing what it was like to be way off-center in the love direction, that it didn't do much good to show them what it was like for him to be way off-center in the light direction. I said he should show balance instead. I got silenced at that point in the ride home from meeting, I can tell you, but I'm not sure I was wrong. Two Head Led The Heart and Head Light and love divide has been a lifetime struggle inside me, in everything, including my dealings with God. When I prayed, I most often prayed that I could figure things out, that I could learn things, that I could know things, that things be revealed to me, that light be shone onto them. Because to me, life always seemed like it was all about figuring stuff out. I prayed for light rather than love, to get light and give light, clarity rather than love. And that was very one-sided. I wish I could say I got that fixed. With women, I have sometimes been very helpful to them by figuring out and helping them understand more deeply their hearts and thinking, their lives and problems and so on. But there's been something missing as to my not engaging them, not sharing with them my feelings. I mean, I've always been able to figure out what my feelings were, and I can identify verbally what they are and analyze them, but I've generally had a real inability to make others feel that I'm feeling anything much at all, rather than simply informing them what it is. My face, 
my body language, and my voice, like so many, many Plymouth Brethren people, give nothing much away, even compared to the generally reserved average Canadian Anglophone. We wouldn't stoop to playing poker, of course we're meeting folk, but most of us had world-class poker faces. We were being watched and judged, and we knew it. This is one reason why poems and songs and stories became increasingly important for me, back when I was feeling my culture fall down around my ears. With them, I could try to make people not only know, but also feel and get what I was feeling. Otherwise, it was just facts to them. Also, if you blankly say, I'm really, really angry right now, or this thing is tearing me apart, with the kind of absolute composure many of us are capable of, it doesn't quite register with the listener. Sounds like you're talking about something that's not quite real, or is about someone else. There's no connection or sharing in it. Of course, my being very calm and showing no reaction while people share all manner of dark secrets and emotions with me works well when there's trouble. But it's always been in that one direction. I'm the sounding board. They're sounding. What to do with your feelings. Feelings are only for one thing. Being felt. That seems rather obvious, but I grew up and continue to know people who do their best to do absolutely anything other than feel their emotions. They try to judge, bemoan, and suppress them where they speak continually about what they should and shouldn't feel rather than actually about feeling the feelings they really have. They apologize for having them. They deny having them. They analyze, explain, and label them. They drown them in shame. There are any number of approaches for trying to do something other than feeling the feelings. I decided back in the day that I was doing something rather foolish. I was trying to plan my life as if I had full control over what I did or did not feel. Now, to this day, I believe one can choose whether or not to indulge manageable feelings, but undeniably, strong laughter and tears and rage are unmistakable facts we can't logic or self-control away, and they happen to all of us if we're healthy. That's part of what it means to be human. Whether or not they spring up isn't something we can actually control. When you get too much emotional energy building up from within, it will get out, some way or other. And we all build up payloads of emotional energy just by living our lives. There are healthy ways and unhealthy ways for it to get out. But it's getting out. Some people have feelings that explode and burst out. Others have feelings that flow out steadily. And still others lock it all down ironclad, but they leak. They walk around secure in the notion that their feelings are under lock and key, yet they're leaving an oily trail after them everywhere they go. They will swear that when they are angry, no one suspects a thing. This isn't, however, true. It just isn't. There are always people who know, and the feeling is real, and it is affecting everything. Real things affect everything else. Real things even affect things that aren't, and vice versa. Feelings are facts. They exist. They have causes and effects like anything else. The choice is how to handle them, not whether or not to deal with them. They are. They need to be dealt with. My whole life, I have known Christian people who simply can't be known as emotional entities. Often, they have some pretty iron-clad personas they can't drop, social masks. Some of them aren't even really talking in their real voices when talking to others. Some have fake FM radio voices, while others have jokey clonish personas. They're kind of playing a character, which character is meant to block a clear view of not to put too fine a point on it, them. 
It's a stereotype that men supposedly can't talk about their feelings. Most men I know can, and we do. Women are not, I do not believe, better at understanding feelings. I think they are just better at understanding women's feelings, naturally. There are, however, some people of both genders who are extreme cases, men whose feelings are screamingly obvious to everyone around, but who can't admit to or deal with a single one. This is not, I feel, functional or recommended, but we saw and still see a lot of it round these parts. My sister says, Feeling an emotion doesn't trap us in it. Breathing and accepting a feeling as mine lets me face and free myself. About how we carried on as to our feelings growing up brethren and how our parents tend to respond to us today, she says, There's no logic in it. Everyone sounds like robots. This is a sign that feelings are buried. Rebuking is not a feeling. Neither is anger, for the most part. Almost every time someone is experiencing their feelings as anger, there is some deeper feeling, betrayal, sorrow, fear, helplessness, shame, under it, pretending not to be there. I've lived in Canada my whole life. The people of the Bible were Mediterranean folk. In my 20s, I worked at the high-tech telecommunications firm Nortel Networks for several years. While I was there, I worked with and met a large number of people from the Middle East. I concluded that they often are, to generalize wildly, much more hot-tempered, quicker to take offense, quicker to smile, more direct, more apt to use touch to communicate, more apt to weep, funnier, and altogether far more likely to wear their feelings on their sleeve. When compared to many of us Canadian folks, that is, with our much younger cultural heritage and the unthinking vestiges of Victorian repression still tangled around our ankles like underpants whose elastic has broken. I worked with a lot of people from Asian countries, too. I found that, generally, they were far more guarded, impassive, and reserved, even, than we European-descended folk. And I got to watch the social interaction go on between white people, African people, Mediterranean people, and Asian people, among all types of people who were, to varying degrees, representative of cultural subgroups which only a fool would suggest do not leave some kind of a mark in a child's formative years. It was complex. It made me think a lot made it hard not to generalize about cultures and impossible to apply generalizations to individuals because individuals can grow outward from their roots a great deal but knowing where those roots are planted does seem relevant my roots are in the Ottawa Valley where we apologize for getting emotional and getting emotional pretty much only means displaying an indication of sorrow Ottawa Valley Feelings my dad has always acted like a typical rural Ottawa Valley guy, only more so. Emotions weren't really real, like planks, wrenches, carburetors, and bales of hay were. Emotions were kind of imaginary. Feelings were things women were worse at controlling than men. He certainly reflexively denied any emotion he was ever accused of having. In fact, when he felt much of anything, he'd say mom was feeling it, like a child farting and trying to blame it on the dog. Oh, your mother's very upset. Oh, your mother's sad today. Oh, your mother's very tired. I teach a lot of very decent, good-hearted Ottawa Valley teenage boys today who are not a whit different from my father in terms of any of this. Country folk. They know how to castrate a pig or clean a shotgun, how to field dress a moose, how to clean mud out of their rads. A rule of thumb is that any male person in any of my classes who is wearing more than one item of camo clothing is likely going to approach emotionality much like my dad. 
All the tired old women are crazy. Always wanting to talk about their feelings. Humor from generations previous is going to hit home just as strongly with these guys as it did with people 60 years earlier. Some of them still think Archie Bunker is pretty cool and worry that if they have genuine human feelings, this will mean they are gay. They don't even bother saying, I'm not racist, but before they give you their worldview. And they don't hate other races. They just know even less about them than their grandpa does. And knowing one black person doesn't mean you have a broad understanding of and comfort with black people. It just means you know Tyler, and you have no problem with Tyler. Tyler's one of us. He's really not a bad guy, not like his other ones. These guys think race riots in the American South are over slavery, which they believe is still going on. Slavery, or segregation, or something else they don't know the word for. doesn't matter. Racism, segregation, slavery, black people, and stuff. In our house, 30 years before any of these lads were born... Anytime my father was talking about someone else's feelings, mood, or difficulties, it didn't take you long to realize that he'd always and only been talking about himself, projecting his own feelings onto others rather than feeling and knowing them. For example, if he was angry, he'd interpret the other people around him as angry and ask why they were angry. If he was sad, he'd try to comfort someone nearby and would tell them to cheer up. Sometimes the dog was sad and needed to be comforted. In the 20th century, I'm told, we suffered through two world wars and a Great Depression. I am also told that many people who went through that, including people who'd served in the wars, or who'd been in POW camps, or even survived the Holocaust, or were nurses, were generally known for refusing or being unable to talk about any of it. I am also told that their children sometimes suffered as a result. It wasn't until the 60s and 70s that the idea of sharing your feelings really took off. It went in admittedly flaky directions then, but it was certainly the other side of that taciturn coin. From the poetry and songs to the books and t-shirts, it was time to talk about me and how I was feeling. Growing up, I had to deal with people from both sides of that, all right? They both used the word just in very interesting ways. Why can't you just spit it out, they'd say to a person who was unable to share something. Why can't you just live your life and just stop feeling sorry for yourself and bothering other people with your problems, they'd say to a person who could. One thing I decided back in the day, we were as much heart as we were head. We're supposed to be anyway. There was meant to be a balance. Head wasn't supposed to extinguish heart and rule supreme over it. Feelings weren't supposed to quench all thought all the time. When we tried to be mainly one or the other, this revealed much about us. Mostly it revealed what we couldn't deal with comfortably because growth in that area was required and the lack of which caused trouble for everyone around us. I learned about being positive and negative from my dad. Here's my father being negative about someone. Well, well apparently, apparently Mary's, Mary's a, bit, a bit, you know. And here my dad is being positive. Well, I've, I've got, got no problem with Steve. Steve. I don't I dislike him at all. He's, He's not, not a bad, bad guy. guy. He never hurt anyone. A double negative made a positive. You had to know Dad to get what he was being, and even if you correctly interpreted the emotional response, he was never going to discuss the matter fully. He would be extremely unlikely to ever say outright what Mary was a bit exactly. He was used to vague allegations and doubt. He suffered them his whole church career. He was uncomfortable with conflict. His family had that habit of if they accused someone of something, it was almost never to the face, and if it was, they would then flee the conversation right after having tossed their emotional bomb. End of discussion, they would declare on the way to the room or house, just like they'd actually been participating in one of those. They didn't feel safe having discussions. After all, their parents had had those, and they ended up divorced. 
and the path to it was messy. My dad's three brothers, too, had many discussions with their wives and ended up divorced as well. Discussions had gone very, very awry in their house growing up. But discussions didn't go awry in our house. It just upset Dad when I tried to have them. I called it a discussion if we were going to talk about something because we didn't seem to already agree. My father called that a fight and said he didn't want to fight, so just shut up. End of discussion. Why cause trouble? People never agreed, and fighting was best avoided, so shut up. At the other end of the emotional spectrum, my dad was never going to be more positive than having no problem with Steve either. Than Steve not being a bad guy. Than his new car being not bad, I guess. And that was my heritage. My ability to be positive was learned at his feet. There was nature and nurture behind that, pushing me to get stuck there too, for my whole life. And one of the weird things I learned at school was to back up my points and stand by them. This was seen as unnatural and perverse by many in my experience of Christians, but I did it all the time. And sticking to my main point and refusing to be drawn off into side issues and personal attacks. That last trick, along with being direct, was seen as cheating in many circles. Also, many, many people thought that being passive-aggressive... Wow, I sure wish my understanding of the world was as simple and unburdened with facts as yours clearly is, but then you're Canadian. Can't really expect much different from you, I guess. No worries, I don't mind a bit. Would you like some tea? I have some lovely tea. You really must try some. I hear your kind love tea. Known for it. Sad, really. Try not to rape anyone while drinking it now, okay? was, of course, morally superior to being aggressive. Stop insulting me now or I'll hit you with this. My experience in Christian circles exposed me to a whole lot of passive aggressiveness, stealth nasty, and positivity expressed through sarcastic serious comments like, nice shirt there, buddy, jokingly said as if insulting. But if you knew the person, you're supposed to be able to tell that the snark was faux snark. The snark was there to cover the awkwardness of being fond or accepting, of having given a compliment. You just pretended that you hadn't, disguised it as an insult. Nice haircut there. In the circles I moved in, directness of the kind that said, I've got a problem with your continually telling people I'm gay when you know very well I'm not, was taken as eccentric, socially awkward, and unacceptable, as reaching for the tactical nuclear weapons. I had to get over that, and I did. I got very direct, and it scared people. Tipped the scales way too much my way. Stripped a lot of would-be attackers of a whole lot of their weapons. I became someone who calmly, coldly even, directly, bluntly expressed objections and disagreement. If I had negative feelings, I didn't hold them in. And although I certainly can't recommend being known only for blunt negativity, I equally cannot recommend snark, denial, sneering, or evasiveness or indulging in passive aggressiveness so as to toss out some negativity while maintaining deniability. But then people like you will probably do whatever you want, and we all know what you're like. Sad, really. But it's okay. It's okay with me. I don't mind a bit. Informing God of Negative Feelings One thing I had to learn for some reason was to tell God my feelings, even if I didn't think they were good and proper ones. Especially then. No hiding from him like Adam had tried to do. I knew Adam was being silly, but did I know better? Of course, I believed that he would know if my feelings weren't what he wanted, but still there was an odd reticence as to simply dealing with the reality of what they were, having a discussion about them with him. 
As I've said, I think a lot of people, when they reject the appropriateness or expedience of an emotional reaction, simply try to not feel it, admit it, or accept it. Maybe they're hoping that then it will just go away somehow, and that it will not simply join the growing shadow self they have been fostering in there. In my experience, if you wanted an undesirable feeling to burn itself out or go away, the fastest way to do that quite often was to start by admitting that it was a real thing. Hiding from it made it grow somehow. It worked that way when avoiding talking about it with God. I remember the first time I stopped trying not to be angry with how God, it looked to me, was dealing with my month. I simply told him that, although of course he was always right about everything, that I was angry with him that month, that I was frustrated and confused and put out with God, that I knew that this was foolish, but that it was the reality right then, that month, that I wasn't any more spiritual or mature than that, that this was the fact of the matter. It worked out really well, honest, it brought us closer, it was open and real, it made me not be angry anymore very soon after I discussed it. It's a cliché, but I found that when I denied the true nature of what my feelings were, I lied to myself and made decisions and went through my day under false pretenses. And that was not a recipe for success, I learned. You don't have to indulge your feelings, but it does help to admit them, I found. It took the power out of emotional facts like fear, jealousy, lust, shame, and anger to accept that they were real even if they really weren't helping. In church settings, I was much more used to people who never discussed feelings without bringing the word should or shouldn't into the discussion. I noticed that should allowed them to always be talking about imaginary, ideal emotional states. How do you feel about this? Well, I suppose I should be happy, so I guess I am. This didn't seem to help anything at all. They mostly were shifting their focus off the actual so as to be able to discuss the The amazing amazing super-Christian. What a great hero he was. Did everything he should. I decided, after some thought about the wildly popular, endlessly discussed fictional character super-Christian, that is absolutely Trump's should, when one was trying to deal in what was actual anyway. I felt that we don't fix the less-than-ideal by trying really hard not to admit to it or think about it. Once Carol left her much more cultish-than-ours exclusive brethren group, she said, I feel everything more now. Ergo, if it's shame that's hitting, then it can sometimes be a bit crippling. But my shame, or whatever emotion, is mine now, not offloaded because of some silly religion someone else dreamed up and used to control me. the number one thing we did to avoid feeling things. I was just watching a documentary about the Amish, and as I watched, I automatically did what I tend to unthinkingly do about religious people. I started judging them, started building a case against their isolationist legalism, thought about how oddly fake and mechanical, yes, a mechanical Amish, and closed they seemed. Then I realized that judging behavior starts with feelings, pretty obvious natural feelings, Feelings like, they're weird. This documentary is making me upset and sad. It's bringing back memories of my own culture. Our own culture suddenly doesn't seem nearly different enough from the Amish. The Amish no longer seem comfortably different enough from our culture either. And they're pretty weird, so I don't like them. Those are just feelings. No harm in them, but then hard on the heels of the feelings immediately followed what I guess is a defense mechanism or Pharisee entitlement or something. Judging. Criticizing. Moving on quickly from the uncomfortable, perhaps xenophobic feelings, the narrow-heartedness, to intellectually proving that there was something obviously wrong with whatever the bad people or thing was that made me feel bad, making a case against it, 
nitpicking their doctrine, scoffing at how exactly they were using out-of-context Bible verses, armed with a knowledge of the Bible amassed from birth upward. And that's when it gets nasty. Who am I to judge Amish people? Do they need that? Why do I act like it's my job? Why do I feel they would judge someone like me, so I feel like judging them back? Isn't that the stupidest thing ever, but something that we accept as usual and normal? Why not just feel those feelings and maybe even hear what they reveal about me, good or bad, viewing them a little more like the weather? Is it sunny? Is it raining? Do I feel sad? Instead of, it shouldn't be raining and I shouldn't feel sad. I'm seeing what it's like when I put the shoulds away, when I feel the feelings and stay in them without trying to hit back at whatever might have contributed to them, learning to know myself. Because you have to learn to get along with yourself, the real one, no matter what it feels. Getting along with yourself. The aged patriarchs of the church in my area were three little hey-ho brothers, and the kind of teaching, the focus of their teaching, was very uniform between them. It was the bedrock upon which we young brethren plants were expected to take root, find nourishment, and grow. The central preoccupation of much of their teaching was self and how bad it was. The Christian life presented by them was an extremely simple dichotomy. Either to follow self-will, doing what you thought was a good idea, what you wanted, what seemed to work out for you and make sense, or else to do what God wanted, which we could depend upon to always and only be the precise opposite of whatever we wanted, every time. Because we wanted bad things, God wanted good things, things that were never nice or fun, of course. God wanted nothing but sacrifices we should just feel honored to make for him. These guys would go on and on and on about how self wants to sin, and so we must never, ever, ever follow self. If we did, man would we sin. They'd go on about how we had no greater enemy than self, about how if we wanted to be happy, we had to put self in the place of death, day by day, moment by moment, thought by thought. They'd talk about how self and the old nature were the same thing, and about how we had a formula in scripture they taught for joy. J-O-Y. J. Jesus first. O. Others next. Y. Yourself last. Thing is, like a lot of teenagers, I suffered depression, the stereotypical existential angst phase, so joy was something I could really have used a workable formula for, and this one didn't work for me. I have come to suspect that the really important things in life seem to resist being stuffed into formulas. Come to think of it, a lot of brethren people in general suffer depression, and I definitely suffered it, partly as a very healthy and normal adverse response to my surroundings and the spiritual climate in which I found myself. J-O-Y. It didn't work, so I tried it harder. First, what my church culture said Jesus wanted or deserved. Then, and it was the same thing, serving the expectations of everyone else at meeting. Listening to any and all concerns. Having to clear everything with everyone before doing anything at all. And this left no room at all for myself and my needs. The more I pursued it, in fact, the more I wanted to be dead. It made me want to literally put myself in the place of death. In the ground. Made me hate myself. Made myself be quite literally my worst enemy, just like they said. Made me keep a razor blade in my bedroom and not eat for a few days here and there. It was not a fun time. People sure had a lot of advice, though. 
I should be enjoying cheerful hymns and instructive booklets and verses and sayings. I should be engaged in more church involvement and remembering to fake my smiles. I should be doing more things for others so I wouldn't have time to think about myself. I should be happy because I was a Christian, gathered to the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I shouldn't be thinking of myself and my feelings. I was supposed to be thinking of them and their feelings about who I was being. All of this added to the load I was carrying immeasurably. The obligation to never provide any kind of evidence for our culture not working 100% of the time for 100% of obedient meeting people. And all through this special time, I had strong, solid, hey-ho teaching telling me that no matter what had happened in our church, if I was discouraged, it was certainly my fault. Because if I was discouraged, the Lord Jesus had certainly never let me down. He is the friend that never faileth, after all. So if I wasn't happy, my focus had sadly, clearly wandered from him, and how deserving of our focus he is. My focus had wandered, so it was no surprise to anyone that I pretty much sucked now and wanted to be dead. It was all my own stupid fault for not being Christian enough, for not doing church stuff hard enough, for being self-centered, selfish, for dwelling on myself and my problems instead of blissfully dwelling on Jesus, who alone never disappoints. But I didn't know a Jesus who liked me back then. I didn't know a God who wanted me to be happy in this life. I was quite certain, at first, that he wanted me to be miserable for him, and was making me this way because he hated fun and joy. Either that, or I was allergic to him. I simply could not tell God from meeting culture, couldn't distinguish the Bible from hey-ho sermonizing. Because no hey-ho or other person at our interminable meetings was teaching that there was much room in your life for accepting, nurturing, or enjoying yourself at all. Maybe a tiny bit of recreation was kind of okay, like going and chasing a soccer ball around between meetings. But really, it wasn't that we folks who had no status were to put ourselves last so much as never. If we wanted anything, we needed to sacrifice that on the altar unless we held power, in which case we could adjust things around us all week long purely for our own comfort. And today, I know too many people raised under this, many related to some hey-ho or other through marriage, blood, or increasingly frequently both, who can't simply sit down and enjoy a piece of raspberry cheesecake. They have to make it themselves, from scratch, mind you, and then give it to someone else, apologize for it not being perfect and for not actually having watered the raspberries by hand and personally milked the cows, and see the other person dramatically praise it before they can properly feel good about the experience. They can only enjoy things secondhand and as part of a whole personal service and sacrifice thing. It isn't really Jesus first, others next, and yourself last at all the way we do it. It's other meeting people only. Otherwise, shame, which for some becomes an old familiar friend, becomes home, makes them feel like they know how to be a Christian who's not headed for shipwreck, though they may want to be dead a lot. But I tried this J-O-Y formula. It didn't work. So I made my own formula. A times I equals M-Q. Your level of awareness of built-in things that made you irrevocably different times your involvement in church status games equals your own misery quotient. Is it okay to love yourself? The scripture assumes that we love ourselves. Husbands are told to love their wives as they love their own bodies. And the summation of the law Jesus taught was loving your neighbors the way you loved yourself. Now for those of us who are raised to unthinkingly, uncontrollably reject and doubt ourselves, neither of these two verses made any sense at all, due solely to the unnatural thing that had happened to us. 
I've come to believe years later that there really was a great capacity for these white-mustached, bespectacled little hey-ho men of Huguenot French descent, whose last name means pitchfork, to have been arrogant, to have run everything, to have gone around thoughtlessly, reflexively dismissing anything that didn't sound like what they thought and felt themselves. I think that's the kind of thing they were vainly combating with all of these sermons against self. The sermons were for themselves. The fact is, they did run everything, inarguably. They didn't even have to be there to run everything. Eventually, it became clear that they didn't even need to be alive to do that. The fact is, any and all thoughts that weren't theirs got thoughtlessly, reflexively dismissed. And people will still tell you how graciously they reflexively dismissed these other thoughts or waited while their followers dismissed them. They were really nice guys, but all that reflexive dismissal still happened, especially toward the end of their lives. Modern hymns and translations, non-brethren Christian books, praying with post-Elizabethan grammar, all dismissed out of hand without any really satisfying answers or discussion of the matter. It isn't seemly, does not benefit the godly walk of a true child of God, does not give proper place to he who is so worthy, they would say. And that would be enough. But their personalities, their willpower, their passion could not be denied, and most people didn't feel nearly as passionately about much of anything church-related as the Heho seemed to. There were a few exceptions. They were given no place to be themselves, and they all left or were pushed out eventually. So things always seemed to go the hey-ho way. They never got told no and had to wear that. Not once, not even when they were very old and had little idea what was going on. Albert didn't live to his seventies, and many of us have a special fondness for him because he had three things in spades that the other two had comparatively little of. Warmth, humor, charm. The point is, some of us did as we'd been taught at meeting. We grew up hating ourselves hating ourselves. Self-loathing was what we gleamed from these sermons, self-doubt. The Heho brothers seemed quite unburdened by doubt of any kind. When they told you what Jesus wanted, it bore a surprising similarity to what they wanted to happen. They had real trouble imagining that Jesus would want anything different from what, say, their father Harry would have wanted, neo-Puritanism, nouveau Pharisee, stuff that seemed brethren outwardly, what made us peculiar, the inability of other people to connect to us, was just more evidence of our superior spirituality and adherence to Scripture. These men were at meeting when I was a teenager, demanding that we not follow self-will, that we fight the good fight, that we not indulge a self that supposedly would want to spend Sunday morning in bed, snoring with its face pressed into a triple-decker chocolate cake, all shut up with heroin between its toes, a feather duster up its butt, and an empty bottle of vodka broken on the floor beside the crack pipe and the three OD'd whores. But all this wasn't the battle that some of us were really fighting. Some of us were fighting to get out of bed at all, even to eat our Cheerios and go into meeting to hear these men speak. To some of us, their words were increasingly soul-poisoning and one-sided, psyche-warping. Some of us not only didn't rely on, depend on, or trust in self, we actually felt deep down that we weren't worth it, weren't worthy of anything, of oxygen, for example, certainly not of Jesus loving us. So God was wrong. We just weren't worth saving. What was he thinking? It would be nice to think I was the only one with this problem, that I am exaggerating, or that this doesn't go on today. 
that only people with clinical emotional issues or only sensitive people would be affected this way, that the teaching did not worsen emotional issues, that it died with these three men. But all this just isn't true. There are church-funded Hayho tribute bands and Gordon impersonators touring the world at the time of this writing, coming soon to a meeting hall near you. What saith the Scriptures? The Scripture doesn't really teach that God-versus-self dichotomy in that way. It draws the line between spirit and flesh instead. Flesh means just going through our days being the meat bag we are, fighting impotently to overcome the problems we became aware of in Eden's paradise. Which problems made it no longer paradisial to us? Using our own inadequate human spirit to try to fix problems that are quite beyond us. Adam had his hiding in the bushes and his fig leaf apron strategies. We have our lofty vows, resolve, willpower, and lifestyle restricting structures. The flesh is full of religious ideas for how to somehow accomplish self-improvement without actually changing self at all or knowing God a bit better. But as Tyler Durden says, self-improvement is just masturbation. I do not drill my own fillings. I do not test my own eyesight. I would not perform surgery on myself. So the alternative to what the Bible refers to as the flesh is we can look Godward to be enlightened to be taught and inspired, and to be made more mature and spiritual, get made over by our Maker, download the upgrades from on high. Nobody but God gets to do that in my life nowadays. And I don't read the Bible unsupervised. If reading the Bible is not about knowing Him better each day, but rather about being correct and informed, then it's useless, dangerous even. Christ came to reconnect ourselves with our God, because God wants to give us the desires of our heart. Did God send Jesus because we'd angered him, or because he loved us? Whose idea was the arrival of the Christ? Did Jesus feel he had to get between the Father and mankind, or the Father would tear us up? What saith the scriptures? Fruit Growing up, we were certainly taught how bad the works of the flesh listed in Galatians 5 really were, but we kind of glossed over some I can't help but notice looking back. We were raised in fear of selfishly demonstrating the more fun works of the unedified flesh, such as fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, murders, drunkenness, revels, and things like these. How worldly! How sensual! Partying and having sex and listening to heavy metal albums with devil imagery on the cover, drinking beer, playing Dungeons and Dragons, watching horror movies, maybe even playing catch on the Lord's Day. But we skipped rather lightly over those other works of the flesh in the list, the ones that caused every single one of our church splits. Specifically, we never seemed to be able to meet for any five-year period without being asked to support one group of people who were condemning another group of people somewhere in the Brethren world. Much of what goes on on Facebook nowadays is us-or-them position-taking efforts. We stand for little more than standing against people sometimes. But in the meeting, it really didn't matter what side we were on. All of us warring people were quite clearly equals in demonstrating the specific works of the flesh that had been carefully glossed over on our go-to list. Hatred, strifes, jealousies, angers, contentions, disputes, schools of opinion, and envying. 
And when I look at the fruit of the Spirit, by contrast, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, fidelity, meekness, and self-control, I noted that in order for this fruit to be seen at all, you had to first be a self, a self which was being allowed to love, feel joy and peace, be long-suffering, feel and act in kindness, a self which was free to be good, be faithful and meek when it was inspired to do so, by God, not by peer pressure and shame, not through rules, vows, and resolutions, certainly not through a body of dense doctrinal buttresses against fun. But we were weakly being taught to simply not be ourself, rather than to look to God to transform us inwardly so that being ourself meant being like Christ. But the latter is what the Spirit of Christ does to us, inner transformation, not dutiful suppression of all things inner. Self-control, sometimes translated temperance, doesn't mean repression or abstinence. It's a moderate wisdom which involves knowing how far to go and when to start and stop things. Interestingly, though, when the Christian women's temperance movement was at work, they weren't trying to teach people to know how to control their consumption of alcohol or when it was appropriate and inappropriate to drink and how much. No, they brought about prohibition, the criminalization of alcohol, so those who did not abstain wholly, abstinence isn't by definition moderate, would be punished. Clearly, this isn't temperance at all. It's not self-control. It's government control. Christian movements like that are always up to the same thing, trying to fix the world by correcting and controlling it. And the temperance movement failed to correct America and make alcohol consumption go away. In fact, it failed to control the production and consumption of alcohol much at all, even when people were being sent to jail for having alcohol in their houses. These old fleshly ideas about repressing our inner selves, trapping our wounded, twisted psyches in the depths of our meat prisons, do not work. They do not spring from love, the cardinal virtue seen in the fruit of the Spirit, the virtue that, if you don't have that one working, nothing else matters. God isn't just the opposite of me. The good news is that despite my upbringing, I eventually grew beyond thinking of God as me backwards, as a being who existed to perversely want the precise opposite of each thing I happened to want as I wanted it. In fact, I can't anymore think this way without feeling silly. I still feel it sometimes, but I feel silly when I do. I suppose I learned that God is so much higher, deeper, broader, more ancient, complicated, and mysterious than I, but I've been taught to be very simple-minded about him. I was one person, and he was a totally different, not merely opposite person, it turned out. We were not equal opposites. He was not just mirroring me in reverse. You seldom knew what he might want, despite what everyone said. Everyone seems to feel he or she can pretty much tell you the kind of stuff God always and only wants. But it isn't true. You can't predict him like that. God is an actual person, up to all kinds of stuff that he doesn't necessarily tell me about. It took me a while to get to know him as that, as a person quite independent of the expectations of me, my family, or my church culture. But eventually I did. This meant that any bringing to the table, so to speak, of my own concerns, interests, and desires was bound to be a complicated and odd negotiation with him, but one he insisted upon having. And it involved more than me simply sacrificing the desires of my heart for him, because that's not how collaboration and relationship work. There needed to be an end to that you go, no, you go, oh no, after you, no, you first thing. There really did. 
and then we both could get things going. God made me to be a specific kind of tool in his toolbox, and I needed to resist the attempts of others and their bureaucratic one-size-fits-all human systems to try to make me into yet another hammer, an entire toolbox filled only with hammers. So I laid aside that hey-ho-tot ambition of sacrificing myself and being some kind of proper, typical, fitting-the-mold, meeting Christian. I realized that resolving to somehow be meeting normal or typical was foolish and was doing real damage to me, that trying to meet every possible expectation and assumption of everyone there had to stop, that I had to grow able to weather their displeasure, their lack of comprehension and acceptance. So I gradually stopped trying to live up to that, and it was very freeing. Scary levels of freedom, actually. People cut me loose in droves. People stood back and warned others not to talk to me about God because my ideas about Christian liberty and why Christ died scared them. Stopping serving that system freed me. It also brought a great deal of responsibility, far more than someone raised to follow was expecting. Because I was free to be the self God intended, all right. But this also meant I had to toss out the old maps and instruction manuals which covered entirely the wrong continent during the wrong century. I had to begin to work with God more directly. When my sister was moving to Japan to teach English, one of the Mrs. Hayhos told her, Always, Always read, read your, your Bible, Bible, pray, and go to meeting, and, and don't, don't marry a black man, man because it's wrong. wrong. I'm not sure how many black men the Mrs. Hayhoe expected my sister to meet in northern Japan. An older sister sharing some parting words of advice with a young woman going out into the world. I have since heard that various brethren girls from other Canadian and American assemblies who were dating guys who weren't quite white were given talkings to by the Mrs. Hayhoes as well. One is quoted as having said to more than one person, What about your babies? Do you want babies who don't even look like you? This kind of thing tends to get dismissed under the gold, Well, you have to remember that things were very different back then, in the 1990s. Why dredge that racism up? These were prominent people with say into how we dressed, who we dated, and so many other such things. We weren't, and still aren't, to question them even today. I want to show that, although these white-haired old saints are venerated and are still often quoted, when it came to love issues, I think we have to admit to important lacks, to lapses in wisdom, problems as to showing a loving spirit, problems as to arrogance and a spirit of elitism. For example, they routinely advised godly meeting kids against playing with less godly meeting kids. They also routinely advised against adopting unsanctified or bastard children. If asked about adoption, they told childless couples, often those children are the result of unsanctified unions. That makes the children themselves unsanctified and God will not bless your home if you take them in. Well, I'm not okay with all of that. I don't want to respect or turn a blind eye to it. I think that arrogant, elitist spirit is part of our ecclesiastical DNA as meeting people. The sermons of these men are still for sale online today, and their ideas in paper form are in homes all across the planet. The flesh and blood are dead, but that spirit isn't. If it were dead, I wouldn't mention it at all. In fact, it's in every one of us. Programmed in. Thing is, the Mrs. Hayhoes never worried about my suicidal depression or my failing to land a brethren girlfriend. Only the length of my not-even-shoulder-length hair was spoken of. 
these people were very critical and controlling of who we might choose to date. It wasn't like they worried themselves, though, about the fact that maybe our church culture made it so hard to find someone who not only we could live with ourselves, but whom our church culture approved of as well, and was able to handle both us and our culture, that many of us simply would never manage to marry anyone at all. Turned out, my Japan-bound sister actually needed a bit more guidance than that particular Mrs. Heiho had given her. After all, she was learning to live in an entirely different culture, had to deal with God rather than just meeting culture and its advice, had to get to know herself and who she was, couldn't spend the whole time in Japan safely locked inside a brethren bubble, mainly attending meeting to keep from touching Tokyo. She had to become more self-aware, like everyone does. Self-aware versus self-conscious whether you view Eden as an instructive myth or as literal truth, indulge me a bit here. In the Eden story, the man and his woman were completely naked and weren't able to even be aware of this. They were completely unselfconscious, lacked the capacity to even know. By contrast, if I was walking around in a garden with my junk hanging out, I would have trouble losing sight of this reality. I'm observant like that. But the happy couple in the story went ahead and tried to better themselves without God's hand being part of it. No doubt he intended a slower entry into self-awareness than the short, sharp shock that the trespass and following the advice of the serpent brought them. But they went that way, and everything changed. Now they knew good and evil. It wasn't just that they had a conscience that knew right from wrong. It was better and worse than that. They didn't just know that they'd done something wrong. It wasn't just about their actions being wrong, but also about knowing that part of who they were was not good, was evil, twisted, dark, tempted towards theft, murder, and rape. Look at what they'd already managed to do, ruin humanity. Reinhold Niebuhr said, The tragedy of man is that he can conceive self-perfection, but cannot achieve it. Knowing you're not good doesn't mean you can just turn good. You're stuck. All resolutions and vows to the contrary. Knowledge does not equal maturity. With this new knowledge, the man and woman gained a huge problem. Because now they knew any number of things they just weren't ready for. They knew good, and they knew evil. They knew that God was good, and the serpent was evil, and they knew which side they'd taken. They knew it was very much too late to take it back. Even if you know how to act well to do the right thing, this isn't the same as being able to consistently be a good person. So the primordial couple wanted to hide and blame each other, which isn't good, and they knew that too. Their firstborn son would go on to murder his brother due to those same feelings of not being good enough. Rejection and lifelong feelings of inadequacy became universal human experiences right at the beginning. This was probably not what God had wanted, but it was also not beyond his ability to sort out. But when God came to talk to the primordial couple, instead of just going and talking to him like before, they now realized that he was good and they weren't, and they felt as naked as they were, exposed. They wanted to be worthy. They didn't want to be naked. They wanted to hide their vulnerability, and ultimately themselves. They feared rejection, and it was coming. 
from their own newly cognizant selves first, from their spouse next, and finally from God himself. Every single personality, cognitive, emotional, spiritual, and physical lack they possessed, every flaw they developed, would now be something they'd know and keenly feel. No more innocence or ignorance. And they'd keenly feel their maker and the only other human being on earth knowing their flaws too. Their standard for good was God created and was up to his own standard. The serpent hadn't created the fruit. Evil does not create. Because the act of creation has good all over it. And it worked perfectly, even though they weren't supposed to have it. Perhaps he would have given it to them eventually when he deemed it a good time. The fact that it existed at all suggests he might have had plans, so it's up to us to decide, one supposes, whether his plans involve future blessing or proving present guilt through manipulation. Was the tree a trick or a future gift? It's been said that hell is other people. I think that these two proto-people, having taken paradise for granted as normal, as it was normal for them to do, then experienced a kind of hell. For them, hell was knowing what good and evil were and seeing with terrible clarity their own position teetering between the two, with no ability to attain good on their own, and the very real risk of falling utterly to evil just by continuing to live the way they'd been headed. Hell was knowing themselves. Hell was should. Hell was not being able to keep their best vows. Their hell was being self-conscious, the thing God hadn't wanted for them, at least at that point in time, a thing God gave no other animal either, a thing animals do not have to this day, which is why chimpanzees don't feel naked, and why cats do not feel like failures as cats, no matter how fat they may grow and how inept they may be at hunting down small animals. This is why horses don't wear shorts. God had made a paradise for human beings. Paradise wasn't about being perfect, spiritual, enlightened, deep beings who were masters of empathy. It was about not worrying about the fact that you weren't, because you didn't even know you weren't. It wasn't about always remembering that self was your worst enemy and vowing to deny self and punish self and control self. It was as is the case for babes in the womb, being utterly unselfconscious, innocent. And you can't very easily have innocence and knowledge. In the New Testament, there is occasional reference made to self-judgment or self-examination, but there is no encouragement or commandment given to Christians for self-doubt and self-loathing. Because self-doubt and self-loathing aren't good. They're an evil. We know that. And we have that capacity now, thanks to Adam. And they make us weak and indecisive and self-focused. They are, in fact, hellish misery that does not make us any better or tell us anything new or useful. And shame does not push us to approach God. It tempts us to try lame, fleshly, superficial lifestyle fix-ups instead and to flee from him and the truth entirely. Self-conscious teen years. 
I remember being an older teen and younger adult and feeling painfully aware of my own imperfection, my own stupidity, weakness, frailty, folly, and general lack of deserving acceptance, love, or anything nice ever. Now where did that come from? Adam in the garden? My family? My church? Society? The media? I'm thinking maybe it came from all of the above. From people. Not from God. Because this suffering and the knowledge that I wasn't as good as I could have been wasn't doing any good. Of course, if you had told me this back then, I would have just added this to the list of things about me that weren't good. I still hadn't grasped the idea that worrying is trying to change the course of events and one's own essential nature and any number of immutable things using only one's own willpower and attentiveness. I still hadn't decided to try to bring an end to the worrying, through Jesus, to be careful for nothing. I'm not very good at it yet. And I wasn't a pretty young woman, so I didn't get the compliments that people from that delightful subsection of humanity often get and miss keenly when they are older. Even so, sometimes people got sick of how much self-loathing and doubt they saw in me, and they tried giving me measured, strongly worded doses of compliments or reality. They would list my strengths or accomplishments for me. One kind lady actually wrote me a list on paper at work, and it rolled right off me like water off a duck's back. It just didn't work, not even a bit. There was a hole in the bottom of my capacity to accept myself and my journey and where I was at. So even my father was never going to convince me that I wasn't a big disappointment and just plain weird and quite beyond regular folk's ability to predict or understand the motives of. Ditto my mother. Same thing my church. Also my co-workers. As well, what peers I had. None of them were going to make me stop loathing myself. None of them would ever convince me of the importance of extending to myself the same level of tolerance and kindness one might be expected to show a homeless person on the street. Of course, most of them weren't trying to convince me of this in the first place. Most of them were telling me that self was my enemy, to crucify myself daily and keep it in the place of death. I was my own taskmaster and judge, and my standards were higher than God's. I had none of his grace or mercy. I was never going to let myself off the hook for being who I was. If every single one of these other core entities in my life had told me in no uncertain terms that they accepted me unreservedly, deeply appreciated a number of my abilities and interests, and that they predicted great things for me and wouldn't change a thing about me, it is only vaguely possible that I might have been moved to perhaps contemplate believing them slightly. But probably, I would have, in this very imaginary scenario, have done the far easier thing, the thing that wouldn't have required any personal growth. I would have decided that they didn't know, and they were all wrong, and would certainly cast me out into the streets if they knew me the way I did. I'd arrogantly decide I was the only one who was right about my wrongness. So what cured me of self-loathing and crippling hellish self-consciousness? What made me self-confident? That didn't exactly ever happen, 100%, I guess, but, but here's what did. I got skinny from not eating, and my sister continued to call me fat. I got friends, and my father and sister, neither of whom had many lasting friendships, continued to tell me the reason I had no friends was because I had such a problematic personality and no social skills. 
I got a university degree, without really going to class much, and my sister still called me stupid. I started drinking alcohol in moderation, never indulging in excess, and the meeting started to treat me like the town drunk. I was kind to teenage boys who wanted to talk about playing guitar or who had problems at home, and people from my church told others that I was a gay person or a pedophile. I was a sounding board or confidant to any number of troubled young women and wives, and people spread false rumors about me taking advantage of them and breaking up their marriages, which I never did, though no doubt I could have. I decided to follow God instead of just being religious, and my meeting forbade young people talking to me, used a pretense to excommunicate me to perpetuity, called me a wicked person, affixed Bible verses to me lumping me in with adulterers, rapists, thieves, and drunkards, and banned me from all church activities. Many devout brethren people refused even to eat in any room I was eating in, no matter if the event was a wedding, a funeral, or job-related, lest they get any of me on them and their position, status, or image. And it certainly wasn't just me who got this kind of over-the-top treatment. My culture did that kind of stuff to literally hundreds of people, many of whom have gone on to be valued members of their own new churches elsewhere, many of whom I really like and see value in. So I didn't learn that I was okay, exactly. I learned that other people didn't know a thing about me or who God wanted and had designed me to be. I learned that they'd say pretty much anything about anyone. And the people who got the most respect in my meeting culture were hardly even convincing as human beings, let alone people who had something of Christ to share. It's almost like the official damning of me and pretty much everyone I knew kind of made it impossible eventually to take these kind of judgments terribly seriously. They were too reflexive, frightened, and way too over the top. It got so I couldn't take any of that at face value. It started to become funny. I'd like to say that now, when someone says something judgmental, unfair, or untrue about me, I don't feel it much. I can't really say that, but I think it's safe to say that I've learned the difference between being utterly paralyzed, endlessly tortured by self-doubt and self-loathing, and doing stuff. So now people say stuff. There are always people who say stuff, but usually I keep right on doing stuff anyway. I think it's good. And I noticed something weird too. I took inventory of the huge number of accusations I'd collected to clutch warmly to my bosom on cold winter nights for the rest of my days. And I noticed that almost every time anyone ever accused me of anything at all, ever, it was generally for one of two reasons didn't matter whether I was guilty or not, there were still two reasons which tended to prompt people to accuse me of a given thing. It was either they were accusing me of something they were afraid they themselves were guilty of, or they were accusing me of something of which they themselves clearly were apparently the only person left on earth still unaware of the fact that they were very, very guilty. I think that's why most people even have an interest in making all of these pointed judgments of their fellow men to begin with. There is a personal connection to the judgments, an echo coming back at them. I only get told I talk too much by people who want to talk too much themselves. I'm taking their airtime. It works for all of my other vices as well. Pots call kettles black. Fingers point back at us when we point. So I don't feel like nowadays I'm wonderfully, deeply aware of my own virtues and strengths. Nope. 
but I've gotten used to doing stuff without endless stomach-churning doubt beforehand and afterward. I've gotten used to reaping the benefits of forward momentum, and I'm tired of the emptiness of crippling self-doubt. Forward momentum is powerful. There are any number of things that I've done before, so I can just say, I'll do that again. Can I sing for a street full of people at a festival? I did that a bunch of times, so now I can just say, I guess I'll go do that again about it. Can I do it? I've done it. It's not a theoretical discussion anymore. Can I write an entire book? I've done it more than once. This gives me something one could almost call confidence, though these acts are seldom undertaken, without a crippling rush of unhelpful, potentially bladder-loosening adrenaline. Whatever panic, shame, doubt, or self-loathing I may bring to acts of this kind, I have built up decades of practice just doing it anyway, continuing through the crap without it disrupting anything much. And when I really start doing well, it's not so much that I can feel the well, so much as I lose all track of myself and being someone who can panic, doubt, or any of that. I forget where I am, who I am, or what I'm doing entirely. I can stand under a spotlight in a dark room with hundreds of people and get lost in a song I'm singing sometimes, can forget where I am entirely. And swimming in that moment when self-awareness gets ripped away by that powerful tide feels like maybe I got ripped away from it all rather than it being ripped from me. There is no self-consciousness, no awareness of lacks. The occasional slightly missed chord gets missed by everyone listening. There is a torrent, a flow that everyone gets caught up in. All is accepted. Warmth leaks everywhere. And it feels like paradise. So the lesson is that, ironically, if you go out and be yourself that God made enough, enjoying and using what he's given, you can get so lost in the stuff you do that you lose all focus upon who you even are. You can have a taste of unselfconsciousness. It's good. It's paradise. And God is in there with you. You can feel him. Even if it's not a church song, and you're not a church. God wants you to be someone. I spoke with Ruth last week, and she told me that her experience regarding identity was very unlike mine. As for me, I always felt like I'd been born with a very clear, indelible identity whether I liked it or not, and people around me did nothing but try to reject, sideline, or pharmaceutically alter it. Ruth felt like she grew up with no identity, no matter how quaint she made her utter self, like it hadn't had a chance to make itself known to her at all. Like, while I went to young people's meetings and felt continually called upon to justify why I was different, why I liked and didn't like the kinds of stuff I did and didn't like, Ruth went to youth group and went along with everyone, but still didn't fit in. Her inner identity was pretty much all nascent, latent, 100% potential, no actuality. She buried her stunted self in order to pretend that clearly they all had strong, well-developed identities that just happened to be more or less identical to her own, that she liked everything they did. What a coincidence. When actually, she said, she and many of them were kind of empty. Their personalities hadn't grown. Not yet, anyway. And the culture wasn't encouraging or safe for people developing, having, exploring, or expressing identities, despite the fact that God had planted those inside everyone. We were to sacrifice ourselves for him in the meeting. 
And Ruth said in her twenties, after some random pinging around terribly vulnerable to this, that, and the other person or thing, way too much of a susceptible blank slate, she had to eventually come to terms with finally being who God had made her to be, which was perhaps somewhat negotiable, but was certainly going to end up with her being someone rather than just not being herself. Someone. Not merely a negation of natural impulse not just an obedient suppression of everything he designed into her. And all this was certainly something that had to be looked into, run after, and explored. So she had to commit to that and do it upright. And she did. And it was very contrary to how she'd been raised. And it took work. And few brethren folks liked the changes that she manifested. It didn't help her keep meeting friends. But there was really no other option that wasn't nihilistic and inhuman. She talks about crying a lot during that time, of being a wreck. Ruth became known for crying. The odd thing is, I talk about myself and about God and about Christian stuff all the time, with lots and lots of very different people, but I'm not someone who ever cries, really. However, after something had happened too many times for me to ignore it, I eventually had to recognize a fact— Every time my former pizza delivery guy, Harold, spoke to me about this kind of friendly, warm, collaborative, mutual, loving interplay with God, this unity with no battle over one or the other being given all the say, it made me choke up, literally. It was confusing and unexpected. At first I tried to ignore or dismiss it, but it kept happening. It made my eyes watery, made my voice wobbly, each time, no matter what I did. I had to pretend to be interested in all the nothing that was happening out the window when he was talking. Harold doesn't have a pulpit anymore, and he needs one badly, so when you talk to him, he'll unleash a passionate sermon upon you, his congregation of one, and you get the full brunt of it right in the feels. Each time this happened, I was trying not to feel it, but it was getting me. There was a bit of a stung, angry feeling at suddenly having something somehow get past my emotional walls and touch my heart and my hope like that. That's not supposed to happen. It was a sudden vision of a relationship with God that worked. Interplay. A two-way thing. Where he wanted something other than for me to sacrifice me and not be myself. Far easier to present and view all of my relationships as being at standstills and not working. More familiar to fuss and fret over stuff not working than to have to deal with the uncomfortable demanding reality of something working for once with someone. Seemed too good to be true to imagine something like that, like it could be a trick, and one that could lead to my ruination as a Christian and a person, to imagine a relationship that needed me in it, me as myself, not should me, not super Christian, me, now, as is. I was confused as to why this weepy, raw response was happening, as Harold and I sat in a diner and ate french fries and pie. It was food for thought, certainly. It's good to have Harold around to run stuff past in general. Sometimes we talk about the Bible, sometimes we'll ask Jake to come over and see what we all come up with when we look in that book. People tell me that this kind of coming together is absolutely not what God intends when the Bible speaks of, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Not what it meant when Malachi says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. People tell me, this is not church. I'm not so sure. 